Oh, I'm there and not forgotten. Look away, look away, look away, Dixieland. I understand how the removal of a statue now can be framed as they're stealing our history. And I think it's a smart move on their part, but it's it's a very false framing. To us, birthplaces and burial grounds, the battlefields where our ancestors fought, places where you and I, we learn to walk, to talk, to pray. And they're the incarnation of all our memories and all that we are. And something these Yankees do not understand, will never understand. Only a small minority, only about a quarter of people polled yesterday in the United States thought that these monuments should come down. There was a really big systematic push to promote the history of the Confederacy and the so-called lost cause that was largely engineered by women's groups like the United Daughters of the Confederacy, which had a very overt and systematic plan that would establish the true history of the war. They were traitors to America, but then they came back into America. They reintegrated into America. They that was the point. The country the broke, and then it came back. Oh, absolutely, and thank God they did. But it was a civil war. It wasn't like we were invaded, and so it's a little bit more complicated than that. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this happened to my brother. telling you stories of the old... There was this girl... It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. I want to welcome all of you back to the show. Hi, everybody. I hope you're having a zippity-doo-dah day. Oh, God. Oh, no. Yeah, it's that time again. It's that time when we do that thing where you make some listeners really uncomfortable, but it's for a good cause. So just bear with us because we love you and you are smart enough and well-adjusted enough and understanding enough to handle it. We know you are. We believe in you. Before we get there. Before we do that. We need to go run through the business. Okay. Uh, let everybody know we have our social media. You can reach out to us on Just a Story Pod. You can also head over to our website, justastorypod.com, where you can find all of our sources, including all of the sources for this episode, which you may peruse at your leisure. So if you're just stopping by for the first time and you have nasty things to say, beware, because we do cite our sources and we do not respond to nasty emails unless you do too. And no, InfoWars does not count. So uh, They're making the frogs gay. Okay, so <laughs> I think you took a little too much of the energy supplement today. My male vitality. I told you not to steal my male vitality. I'm stealing your precious bodily fluids. Anyway. I think that's a different episode. Yeah. <laughs> and we do want to make sure you also know about our Patreon page where you can find access to lots of different 
extras such as our mini episodes and we just had a great one come out that ties to our alligators in the sewer episode and but kind of this one also too. this one yeah don't ask how that bridge was built you just go and check it out also you can get discounts on our merch and you can get stickers and everybody loves stickers and the merch that you can get discounts on can be found through our website as well there's a link there to our store where you can find like our logo design you can find show related artwork like specific episode related artwork and right now i believe it's still schrodinger's cat and then one other way you can reach out to us is on the urban legend hotline you can dial 512-222-3375 to reach the urban legend hotline and once you have reached the urban legend hotline you can tell us a story or a joke or a thing that's always freaked you out or your biggest fear or a deep dark secret or any compromise you might want to leave behind for vladimir vladimir what who's that i don't know oh okay so samantha back to the many many stories at hand today. oh okay So we got a couple of suggestions for this one, and we were like, we feel like we've already done that. But then we looked at it a little bit more and realized... You can't. You can't. You can't just kind of accidentally do it. So let's start by saying, if you haven't listened to our KKK episode, you may want to start there. Would encourage you to do that. We will be referencing it probably a few times in this episode. So back to our stories at hand, Samantha. Mm Mm-hmm. A great historian, Carl Becker, wrote that history is what the present chooses to remember about the past. That's interesting. It reminds me of an African proverb that says, until the lion learns to write his own story, the hunter will always tell it. And isn't that true? So today we are going to be talking about the great lost cause myth. Are you whistling Dixie? Don't do that too loudly. Okay. (laughs) You're right. You're right. I don't know who I'm paging. They might come. (laughs) No. We heard there was a rally here. So today we're going to be talking about the lost cause myth. And Sam was whistling Dixie. And we had good old Dixie playing at the top of the show. Because the lost cause myth is an integral, integral part of the South. For international listeners, in case you didn't hear our accents... The southern United States. <laughs> That's right. We hail from the Deep South, specifically Louisiana, originally, and it is its own little subspecies of weird below the Mason-Dixon line. For example, I grew up thinking that people from Missouri were Yankees and that Virginia was the North. <laughs> Which you'll see is completely wrong. Uh, don't say that. It was charming. <laughs> So the lost cause myth is a great Southern story (laughs) because it is the one that says that the war of northern Northern aggression, aggression, of course, the Civil War was fought by the gallant, valiant, debonair, chivalrous, intelligent, well to do, virtuous. Oh, very much so. Southern gentlemen against those damn Yankees. But not only that that war was fought, but then it was fought for valiant reasons. Virtuous One may even say. Yes, we're going to hear valiant, chivalrous, and virtuous a lot in this this episode. Those things are key. 
you feel free to write them down. Now, the idea of the lost cause myth is a very old one. The lost cause was brought up very, very soon after the Civil War ended. Like the next year. Well, it first appeared in the title of an 1866 book. Yeah, that's the next year. By Edward Pollard, The Lost Cause, A New Southern History of the War of the Confederates. Now, he doesn't have seven names, so is he a Yankee? No, of course not. Oh, okay, just making sure. (laughs) Here's what sounds like more Southern name. Now, General Jubal A. Early. Jubal. Jubal. That's how you say it. General Jubal. General Jubal. His family started just calling him the General after that. Wrote an article in the 1870s for the Southern Historical Society that really firmly established the lost cause as a long-lasting literary and cultural tradition. Now, in 1881, you have the publication of The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government by none other than failed president Jefferson Davis. Oh, Jeff, you looked lovely in that dress. (laughs) So he was the one-time president of the Confederate States of America. The one, the only (laughs) president. But rumor had it that he escaped. Yes. Dressed as a woman. Yes. From those damn Yankees. And they spread the rumor, too. Oh, and P.T. Barnum even had an exhibit of it in his museum. Well, his was a fake, but the real course. Well, the real (laughs) corset was kept by a Yankee general for years. I'm sure The story goes. I found it in the Times-Picayune the other day. Oh, that makes it true. The New Orleans paper. Okay. (laughs) From like the 1870s. Oh, that definitely makes it true. (laughs) But yes, Jefferson Davis, in addition to his brief stint as the glorious jag queen of Mississippi, also wrote his own memoir. Right. And that really helps solidify the lost cause idea. But here's a great summary of what it is before we continue to talk about it. So this is a historian, Roland G. Osterweiss. Not Southern. No. And he summarized, The legend of the lost cause began as mostly a literary expression of the despair of a bitter, defeated people over a lost identity. It was a landscape dotted with figures drawn mainly out of the past. The chivalric planter, the magnolia-scented Southern belle, the good gray Confederate veteran, once a knight of the field and saddle, and obliging old Uncle Remus. All these, while quickly enveloped, in a golden haze, became very real to the people of the South, who found the symbols useful in the reconstituting of their shattered civilization. They perpetuated the ideals of the old South and brought a sense of comfort to the new. Yeah, he's all kinds of not Southern. (laughs) But he hits it. He hits all those tropes that we're going to talk about all of those. Well, we're going to talk about a lot of those today. So for a lot of white Southerners, this lost cause idea was this language of vindication. Because the cause was just. They must have had a new cause that I don't know about. <laughs> oh, we'll get there too. And it was also this renewal. You know, it was it was a new way to look at things. Some alternative facts. Yeah. So I think the easiest way to understand this is like comics or movies. Like movies in a long running series that use characters rather than story arcs to copyright their franchise. Like this is a retcon, a reboot. You know, and it happened almost as soon as the actual events were over. Like, it became fiction so quickly that no one had time to commit the facts to memory, at least in the South. Well, so the Lost Cause itself even became tied in to this American nationalism. Oh, how so? (laughs) Well, it was necessary for Americans, all of them, or at least the general population, to accept it 
in order to move on from the war. So it was like passively allowed. Okay, wait. So am I to understand that basically we dealt with a civil war like a 19-year-old girl deals with a breakup when she wants to get back together with her boyfriend? I I think I see where you're going. So like she comes in, she's like, I broke up with Chandler. Sure. And like. Oh my God. He was such a dick. Right. Once he tried to touch my ass. Yeah. He was into really weird stuff and it just wasn't working out for us anymore. And he was like, I'm leaving you. And I was like, fine. I'm so glad that y'all broke up. So glad. Two weeks later. So I'm getting back together with Chandler. Oh, that's that's nice. And like, I don't think it's important that like we go through like the whole like making him apologize thing. Because I mean, like it just like wouldn't be good for our relationship moving forward, you know, to like dwell on that. Like, I think he's mostly over it, you know, like. But what about Desiree? Oh, that girl. Well, it was just like a short term fling thing. Thing. I mean, yeah, he talks about her all the time and like how great it was. Does he, like, does he apologize about no, it? No, he oh. doesn't need to. It's we're letting you, I love you means never having to say you're sorry, okay? Insane. <laughs> so it was like that, is what you're telling me. It's not far off, <laughs> but a thousand times worse. Okay, cool. Well, I like to create, you know, personal connections. I like to create ridiculous analogies. <laughs> you came to the right place. <laughs> So, I mean, this, this idea, this idea of what the old South was is something that we both grew up with. Oh, yes. Okay. So, like, disclaimer, doing this episode was like walkabout of the soul for me. It was very, it was very difficult because I really wanted to try and understand the Southern side of it. Like the, not the white supremacist side, that's, that's trickier. <laughs> They're just hateful. But like the... The people who are like, why should we take the monuments down? What are they hurting? They're already there. I really wanted to get that. I needed to at least hear it to make sure I was like addressing all the right points. And then I had to deal with my southernness, which is always hard because there are so many stereotypes about the South on top of the stereotypes within the South that I get very uncomfortable in it. And it's You know, I take a lot of pride in being from the South. You know, I think it's an interesting place. I think that there are great traditions and I love the way that it looks here. I love the land and I love the small town feel and the way people talk to each other. And I love things like that. But I always feel guilty about loving those things because the South has such a a stigma in the rest of the country for being so backward and being so racist. And I embrace ideals that are outside the purview of the normal Southerner. And it's just sticky and weird. And I don't know what to do with it. So a lot of this was really personal for me. And like, I even went so far as to talk to my dad. Great idea. About his feelings about the statues. Wish I was there. It went well. (laughs) Well, let me tell you, I'll give you an excerpt. Oh, please. Are you going to do it in a Wayne accent? I have to get in the voice. Now, Samantha. Now, Samantha. That's exactly what I was going to say. Oh, hell, Samantha. Okay, so I'm at the dinner table with my dad, and we just finished eating and kind of started talking around the subject of the Confederate monuments, and he, at one point it devolves to, oh, hell, I never think about slavery when I look at George Washington or Thomas Jefferson. No, that's not true. I think about it a lot when I look at Thomas Jefferson. Uh. 
That's it in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. So I really have like searched my soul and tried to find like the truth of this situation because it's also colored in magnolia colored glasses. <laughs> no, it's true. And it's because it has become such an integral part of the South. And an attack on that belief system is a personal attack to most people here. Right, because being from the South has become such an identifier. Yeah. It's a grouping that people can get on board. Around here, you'll have, like, shirts that are just like, I'm from the South. I'm a Southern girl. Like, just things like that. I love sweet tea. And, like, welcome signs have cotton on them. And, like, in the South, macaroni and cheese is a vegetable, which is true. But... (laughs) But to really understand how this became such an important part, we have to go back in time. I hear it's rough. <laughs> Let's go in the Wayback Machine. We'll be fine. <laughs> we won't. We will. My people were brown. You aren't. I guess you're right. Okay, so I don't have to be my ancestors. I can be like You. Oh, blonde. yeah, your ancestors now. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we need to go back to the end of the Civil War. So as we talked about in the KKK episode at the end of the civil war you had the reconstruction period and this was a period where the north kind of took over the southern states implemented governments martial law martial law really harsh punishments is what it was to the south and it was there was some attrition to it no one will argue at that point there was some attrition. Think of it as reform school. It was not nice. <laughs> and it caused a lot of problems. And during that period, you also have the rise of uh, times where there's a lot of voter suppression. And we talk, like I said, we talked about that in the KKK episode. And there was a lot, of course, of racial tension, to put it extremely lightly. Right. That's a um, world-class understatement. Southerners aren't known for those. Um, We all rent suits us. (laughs) The art of not saying it. Exactly. Euphemism is a strong, strong phenomenon here. But yes, Reconstruction was very difficult. And if we tried to do a state-by-state reckoning of what happened during Reconstruction, we'd be here quite a span of time. And so we're not going to do that. We're going to kind of do a case study of one little town. My little town. Your little town. My little town. You are Southern, but you're not real Southern. Right. Up until like 20 years ago, everyone in South Louisiana considered themselves Cajun. And not Southern. Not Southern. They're from New Orleans. They're New Orleans. They're in Southern with the you know just spread of media and country music turning the way it did. Uh, let's not talk about country that, music. <laughs> Break my heart. That has changed. It's changed over time. And now, definitely, definitely part of it. But you're right. And where you're from is true Deep South. Old South. Oh, yes. And so we're going to, since this was a very personal episode for me, just go to my little hometown. So let's dive in. We're going to dive into Natchitoches, Louisiana. This is... <laughs> if you can sell it, I'll give you a dollar. <laughs> this is the oldest town in the Louisiana Purchase. Right, right. Third oldest town in the United States. Yes. And it is... Teeny. <laughs> it is small, but it's also very much a southern antebellum town. Right. So, right after the Civil War, there was a court case known as the Trial of the Natchitoches 48. It sounds epic. So, what had happened was 
Natchitoches had a very high Creole population that circulated around the same social sphere as the white people. We will define Creole in depth later, but for the purposes of this exercise in this town, what you need to know is it's people who are racially mixed or have been at some point in their ancestry. And they identified with the sentiments of many of the whites and therefore were all about some Southern Democrats. Which sounds so odd. It was a thing for a really long time until LBJ blew the whole thing up and, you know, signed the Civil Rights Act. Then it magically flipped again. Nothing to do with racism, though. But when the federal government saw their turns for the 1876 election, they saw the high number of black, because there were only two options. You could either be white or you could be black. And they saw the high number of returns for black Democrats. Oh, someone's screwing with the ballot box. Which was a common thing in the rest of the South. Right, but Natchitoches was weird. And so they go in, they're like, the fuck, guys? And they were like, what? Seriously, it's fine. Look, to prove how fine it is, we're going to put together this committee of 70 people. We'll do, you know, some studies on their turns. We'll look at it. We'll make sure that nothing funny's going on. We'll write up a report and we'll send it in. Sounds good. So the original committee of 70 was composed of blacks, whites, Republicans, Democrats, everybody. That's crazy. Right. Everybody's getting together. We're going to have a committee. Committee goes out, checks into it. They're like, nope, everything's cool. Thanks for asking. And the North's like, bullshit. Bullshit, mama. And so they come back with a vengeance, and then they come up with these seven affidavits of black citizens who say that they were voter suppressed. Interestingly enough, when questioned about his affidavit in court, one of the men said, I never said that. Interesting. I'm actually in charge of the voting for Ward 6, and I signed my returns and thought they looked pretty awesome. Wasn't too worried about it. And then he went on to say that there had been intimidation, coercion, and fraud, but not by the Democrats. Really? Right. So, obviously, he's insinuating that the North, the federal government, came in and stirred up trouble. Huh. Carpetbaggers. Carpetbaggers. They really were just nothing but trouble, those carpetbaggers. But they did, in fact, stir up trouble. This led to what would be known as the Natchitoches Race Riot. Right in front of the old courthouse. They had a riot? They had a riot. No one died, which is amazing. That is amazing. Shots were fired. They kind of, everybody stayed on the two sides. But there was this very radical out-of-town preacher who came in town and started preaching. And he was very skeptical of white people. And he was very dogmatic about his skepticism. And he began cooperating with federal authorities to highlight this voter suppression that had gone on. Now, I looked in primary source documents and everything else from the time, and I genuinely believe that this was sort of a drummed up case. So what ended up happening? Well, this guy did get people mad at each other, got who all riled up. Eventually, he fled and hid in an attic, and some guys went to get him and told him that he would... Be allowed to go free if he would, you know, like move to New Orleans or something. Just just going, going. <laughs> and that would have maybe been the end of it, but it just kept getting poked and poked until it was this giant thing. And 48 white men from Natchitoches were charged with like voter suppression and intimidation and a couple of them kidnapping for taking the guy out of the attic. And it was like all these charges for these 48 guys. So they put them all together and ship him down to New Orleans and put him on trial. 
Which was the capital of the state at that time. Right. And so these 48 guys are in there. Everyone knows that this is not going to make a hill of beans difference. Like, they're going to get off. They knew it. Everybody else knew it. And at one point, when there was recess, they started holding a mock trial. Oh, good. And clowning around. As you do. Right. And one of the bailiffs was like, y'all need to settle down. And they ejected him from the courtroom. (laughs) That's not going to end well. Oh, it was fine. Oh, they were fine with it. (laughs) They were fine with it. Okay. But then they were found not guilty, and they paraded through the streets, and they got sent off on a steamship back up north, and they left a thank you note for the city of New Orleans and their hotel, because they were, after all, Southern. (laughs) Well, that's nice. So an odd case of voter fraud that was not voter fraud, that just sets up how odd this town is, because... In most parts of the South, when these cases were brought up... They were real. They were real. And because the Klan was all about some voter suppression and intimidation. And that's pretty much what they did in their first incarnation. Right. And that was a problem like in Caddo Parish and down like in Colfax near Rapids and stuff like that. There were giant riots, but Natchitoches was a weird little town with a lot of French influence and a lot of Spanish influence. And that made it have a very different attitude. Also, it seems like the government that was originally installed there was particularly shitty. Like, and oh, well. kind of everyone agreed, like, regardless of color, caste, or creed, they were all like, yeah, they were really bad. <laughs> and so they were kind of just voting against them, too. But speaking of riots, there were a lot of riots around the South, a lot of race riots. Like I said, there was one at Colfax that was absolutely horrendous. It was, you know, after another election, and there were black militiamen guarding the newly appointed Republican government officials and a group of white guys got together. At the end of that, 150 black men had been killed and 50 of them had been killed after they were taken prisoner or surrendered. And that's more typical of your normal race riot throughout the South. Right. This not shooting thing, that's just weird. And now recently, you know, obviously we're going to touch on the statue and memorial element on this episode because it is a huge part of the Lost Cause mythos. And really the first big metropolitan area to start taking down the Civil War monuments was New Orleans just this year. And it was helmed by Mayor Mitch Landrieu. So one of the monuments that was removed from New Orleans that was not as highly contested as, for example, the statue of Robert E. Lee at Lee's Circle, was the monument to the battle at Liberty Place. So was that a Civil War battle? Post-Civil War battle. Oh, okay. So we might have mentioned the whole Reconstruction bit and said that the Southern states were under martial law. It's because shit like this kept happening. But the monument to the battle was... A 35-foot stone obelisk, granite, which was erected in 1891 by a group known as the 14th of September Monument Association and Women's Auxiliary. So what, pray tell, my dear Jacob, were they memorializing? Apparently not a Civil War battle. No, no, no. On September 14th of 1874, in New Orleans, again, the state capital at the time, A lot of people probably don't need that clarification. I bet most people still think it's the state capital. Probably so. They were getting together to put in the new gubernatorial elect, who was one William Pitt Kellogg. You gotta wonder if he's related. Yeah, you do. Who was 
a Republican, much to the chagrin of the Democrats. Now, the Times-Picayune describes the battle at Liberty Place as follows. Incensed by the presence of blacks in government after the Civil War, members of the white supremacist Crescent City White League in 1874 stormed the U.S. Custom House, where seven New Orleans police officers were killed. Now, the battle took place between around 5,000 members of the Crescent City White League and the police and state militia. Holy shit. That's a lot of people. Right. That really is a battle. Right. Well, there were 3,500 on that side, and they were led by a man named Algernon Sidney Badger, who has a badass name, and I'm jealous. But the insurgents held the state house, armory, eesh, and downtown New Orleans for three days before federal troops arrived. And the result of this three-day siege of New Orleans was that this really weird compromise was reached where the Republicans sort of had control of one part of New Orleans that was backed by the federal government, and the rest of Louisiana did not recognize it. Yeah, they did not recognize it, but the federal government didn't recognize them. It was like the, I'm not talking to you. Well, I'm not talking to you either. Well, I'm not talking to you. Like, thing. They put in someone, someone else was recognized. They decided to raise a monument to the Crescent City White League for their valiant efforts. Right, at killing seven metropolitan police. Cool. Yeah, they did. And in 1891, it was placed on the neutral ground in Canal Street. Let me translate that. <laughs> okay. Canal Street's one of the main thoroughfares that separates like the business district from the French Quarter, but the neutral ground is the median. <laughs> The median, yes. It it feels wrong to say anywhere in New Orleans has a median. <laughs> but this was big news. No, it was front page news. Times-Picayune covered it. And the surviving members of the White League were honored. And like the state militia was there. And military bands were there. And they had speakers. And this continued for years. And the White Leaguers were you know, portrayed as martyrs and heroes. And just, you know, the best guys. Right, so this story became part of the lost cause story. People just fighting for their rights. Oh, and in case there were any questions about whether or not this was actually part of that narrative, in 1932, there was placed inscription on the monument to eliminate any ambiguity. McHenry and Penn, having been elected governor and lieutenant governor by the white people, were duly installed by this overthrow of carpetbag government, ousting the usurpers Governor Kellogg White and Lieutenant Governor Antoine Colored, United States troops took over the state government and reinstated the usurpers, but the national election of November 1876 recognized white supremacy in the South and gave us our state. So a little ambiguity there, right? Not exactly sure what this is about. I don't know that white supremacy has been chiseled in stone in many, many monuments. Literally. Maybe figuratively. <laughs> so this is one of the ones that they were like, yeah, that should go. And it did go down. In 1965. Hooray! But wait. Oh. Don't worry. I know some of you were like, but what about the September the 14th memorial party? That was so much fun. Well, it was back in time for that in 1970. Oh, good. Back in its original location, a member of the United States House of Representatives went to the ceremony. And typically, when people spoke about it or participated in this event, they would just like lay a wreath and go eat at Antoine's, which if you have to mark the day, I guess it's okay way to do it. I mean, that is a white linen restaurant. Yeah. 
Do you think do you, do you think in New Orleans the clan robes are made out of linen? I mean, it's hot. It would breathe better. Anyway, sorry, we digress. But they would typically be like, yeah, it wasn't so much about race as you know, like trying to overthrow tyranny. Of course. Cuz that worked when the founding fathers did it, so you'll buy that, right? And the people of New Orleans apparently collectively said, "Uh-huh." <laughs> But not necessarily, not necessarily, because they did add a plaque. In 1974, and that one said, Although the Battle of Liberty Place and this monument are important parts of New Orleans history, the sentiments in favor of white supremacy expressed thereon are contrary to the philosophy and beliefs of present-day New Orleans. Well, look at that. That's better. That's what everyone says we should be doing. (laughs) Right, and then they tried again in 1993. In honor of those Americans on both sides who died in the Battle of Liberty Place, a conflict of the past that should teach us lessons for the future. And at that time, it was moved... Um, Between a parking garage and a flood wall. Yeah. Better. Much better. Where they all should be. Let or, the river take them. How about on the levees? How about yes. we put them on the levees? Or in the levees. Would that... Well, no, we could raise the, the levees higher, you uh, see. Get a little support. They might as well continue to defend the land. I kind of love it. Like, I kind of want to write Mitch and be like, hey, Mitch, got an idea. But, you know, even after they had put two coats of lipstick on this pig, David Duke saw right through it. Oh, wonderful. He knew his old girl when he saw her. So David Duke is the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. What? Former. Was. was. And a former gubernatorial candidate. And endorser of our current president. Yay! Yahtzee, right? Um, But he was like, this is the shit. And he says it's a symbol of white pride. And in 2004, he tried to throw a rally there, but apparently like no one came, (laughs) which is reassuring in a weird way. And the monument was frequently being vandalized with like anti-Nazi and anti-racist graffiti. Most recently, the one I saw said, take them down. Yes, yes. That Which was I'm a like, frequent graffiti marker in New Orleans when the conversation was occurring. I'm kind of okay with that graffiti on that particular monument. And so, woe unto you, O Liberty Place monument. Your days are done. You were taken down this year. And now you sit in a warehouse in an unspecified location or someone's backyard. <laughs> David Duke's backyard. Oh my God, if they sold it to David Duke, what would that do? Would people be like, cool? Or would they, and like he took it to Germany. I'm fine with that. You'd be okay with it? Yes. Yeah, so or do you think people would be like, money. that's terrible. What if, if he took it away? <laughs> if he took it away, fine. I'm still forbearing it in the levees to help support it. <laughs> Me too. I love it. So while the ideas of the Lost Cause were definitely circulating early on, right after the Civil War, and you can see the intense struggles that were going on at the time with the voter suppression and with the race riots that were occurring throughout the South, it's still not a way to really endear this idea. It's a much better way. What's that? So the historian Gallagher said that the architects of the Lost Cause acted from various motives. They collectively sought to justify their own actions and allow themselves and other former Confederates to find something positive in this all-encompassing failure. They also wanted to provide their children and future generations of white Southerners with a correct narrative of the war. Correct's in quotation marks, isn't it? I think you heard it. So at a rally in 1903 of the United Confederate Veterans in Georgia, Catherine Dupree Lumpkin, 
who was just a child at the time, recalled that even a child liked to listen, talking about the speeches, punctuated as they were every few moments, with excited hand clapping, cheers, stamping of feet, music, and such great men. One of the speakers was an Episcopal bishop and veteran, and she said about his speech, who there could not feel his lost cause blessed when so noble a man could tell them, we all hold it to be one of the noblest chapters in our history. Now her father and many others began to call out, educate the children, preserve and violate the sacred honor of the South. And oh, how the parlors rang with tales of the South's suffering, exhortations to uphold her honor, recitals of her humanitarian slave regime, and ever and always persuasive logic for her position of states' rights. Would you like me to, to ring out in the parlor about the South? <clears throat> now, back when my daddy went to fight them damn Yankees, he wasn't fighting for slavery. That was the farthest thing from his mind. I mean, hell, we were so good to them people. We could have freed them all and they would have stayed. You know, they just loved it here. Sure. That sounds way too familiar. I know you listeners. I know you listeners from Rise Inside the South think Samantha is being ridiculous. <laughs> well, I am. Yes, but no, this is, that's the story. That is, that Dude, is. Dude, I've heard that. Yes. So Back to actual quotes, yes. <laughs> not amalgamation. So they wanted to educate the children to make sure that they knew the true story. So Sumner A. Cunningham was the founder oh. and editor of the Confederate Veterans Magazine, and he urged people to create living monuments. Let auxiliaries be formed of the eager children and their fertile minds. Now is the time of planting if a harvest is to be reaped. We need to get that cotton real tall, y'all. You know, at the time, they would have Southern Heritage Parades. I mean, they still have it now. And one great example is a Southern Heritage Parade in 1908, where the magazine, the Confederate Veterans Magazine, had a contest. Ooh! What, could, what, what was it? A float. For They had a float contest? Yes. Yes. Ah! Uh. Yes. And it was to encourage this theme of, of educating the children so they had teenagers one dressed as a confederate soldier was grace wait and, is this the winning flight oh this is okay and a southern bell and they both stood aside a casket as this was sponsored by the national casket company a major advertiser in the magazine <laughs> shocking <laughs> you guys are all dying now you're old and the inscription blazoned upon the float read, Your sons and daughters will forever guard the memory of your brave deeds. So glad we're educating the children. And Brainwashing the, the I mean, educating the children. And the United Daughters of the Confederacy formed a Children of the Confederacy with the purpose of telling the truth to children. I don't think, in the words of Jack Nicholson... That they could handle the truth. <laughs> and so the old veterans were dying, and we must instill this great lost cause idea into them in order to pass it on. But the problem is, at this time, education is spreading. That is a problem. <laughs> it is. And, and, you know, we're going through high school now, even. Nine out of ten textbooks were published in the North <gasps> before 1900. Carpetbagging textbooks. Yes. And so one chaplain general of the United Veterans of the confederacy was shocked that southern youth were learning to quote think that we fought for slavery 
This is really pathetic. Fastened upon the South the stigma of slavery and that we fought for it, and the Southern soldier will go down in history dishonored. This needed an immediate defense of our reputation. So this guy was a veteran for sure. Yeah, it's chaplain general. Does not sound like he was there. (laughs) It was accepted very whole cloth. Okay. So both the United Daughters of the Confederacy and the United Confederate Veterans formed historical committees to, quote, select and designate such proper and truthful history of the United States and put the seal of their condemnation upon such as are not truthful histories. Condemnation on them is not truthful. Not like false or lies. But yeah, that is the art of the euphemism. Mm. That's the thing we do here. So guess what they did if they found a textbook that they found wanting? Oh, as someone who's just been through like 7,000 old Southern newspapers, I'm guessing they wrote letters. They wrote letters. They do. They they do that. And oh my God, do they? They don't write like, hey, notice an error. Thanks. Uh, oh no. Here, here's, here's a quote. Oh, we're going to get a real one. Oh yeah. Good. So writing to an author to make corrections, stating, The cause we fought for and our brothers died for was the cause of civil liberty. And the Confederates were a chivalric, intelligent, proud liberty-loving people. Sounds right. So the textbook publishers responded, and some people didn't do anything. Some people changed textbooks. Oh. Yeah. Some people printed Southern editions. (laughs) The alternative facts version. Now, of course, we can't just allow the North to just be publishing all of this slander. And so Southern books began to be published to be used in classes. Now, Jabez L.M. Curry. Oh, that's a Southern name. Wrote the Southern States of the American Union. In his preface, he said that Northern books wanted to consign the South to infamy and that books should show that the South was, quote, rich in patriotism and intellectual force and civil and military achievements and heroism and honorable and sagacious statesmanship. I get where he's coming from there. I really do. Like as someone who's very conscious of the Southern stereotype. Yeah. We still don't get that. You know, we still don't have Southern heroes that we're really allowed to like. Maybe because we clung to the wrong ones. Yeah. That's probably it. So one other book, a school history of the United States that was published in 1895 in Richmond, Virginia was written by Miss Susan Pendleton Lee. Oh, like, of the Lees. Like the Lees. Okay. And she said that abolitionists had branded slavery a moral wrong and wrote that the Southern people knew that, quote, the evils connected with it were less than those of any other system of labor. Hundreds of thousands of African savages had been oh. Christianized under its influence. Oh. The kindest relations existed between the slaves and their owners. Mm. The slaves were better off than any other menial class in the world. And she parts, she even puts an old tag for the KKK. During Reconstruction, they were necessary, quote, for self-protection against outrages committed by misguided Negroes. Mm. Okay, honey, bless your heart. But now think about this, like, you still hear that. Well, no, what you hear now is one step less obliquely racist than that it's that what no like i'm saying like when i hear it from the people i know it is that the north was not doing anything to help police and they leave out the rest of it i mean you still hear this today about the method of the happy slave oh absolutely and what's funny 
is even when people will agree like that other families were bad to their slaves, were mean to their slaves, they'll be like, but our family was always real good to them, you know? Yes. Our family our was. Fa- we didn't do anything. Daddy was always real good Maybe to Maybe there slaves. was that one guy. I mean, I heard out in Georgia they were hell on them. And it's always another state. It's not even like a specific right. person. Right. Now, one person you may know wrote a book, History of the American People, in 1911, Mr. Woodrow Wilson. I've heard of him. He was very forward-thinking. Oh, yeah. And so he was harshly criticized for saying that the USS Monitor had won the battle with the CSS Virginia. And don't you worry, Southerners picked up their pens. One person wrote, If this is the way a Virginia-born historian writes her history, may God spare us from another such. When one born of our own soil speaks untruthful history, it cuts deeper and makes a more insidious wound. And he wasn't president yet. He was the governor of New Jersey. And he actually wrote back on New Jersey Executive Mansion stationery mm. his apology. And guess what happened to that letter? Massive circulation. Massive circulation. It's published in every Southern paper. They love publishing letters. It's weird. Yeah, but you have a prominent Northern historian apologizing. Oh, so then... Once there's a ding in the armor, it's like when one news story is retracted. And so this campaign was very successful. In 1902, the Confederate Veterans Magazine had a headline, False Histories Ousted in Texas. Oh, but they put new ones in. Don't worry. Don't worry. worry. Legislation was passed in South Carolina against partial, or partisan, or unfair, or untrue books. Oh, this feels like a little roll-up to the scope trial if ever there was one. Now, there was an apocryphal tale from the 1930s, an unnamed Southern college in Georgia, that they were using a textbook that painted former President Jefferson Davis, truthfully, I mean, in an unkind manner. And so they took it to the teacher, who refused to change the book. They took it to the administration, who refused to change the book. So these good upstanding children of the confederates guess what they did book burning party they burned those books and they wrote letters about it (laughs) they quote kindled a bonfire on the campus and into it every copy of that history was thrown now there were some some rules they set out some things they wanted to you know to to tell if this book had enough truthiness to it is this textbook etiquette Uh uh uh-huh okay good so we must reject books that speak of the constitution other than as a compact between sovereign states a book that does not clearly outline the interferences with the rights guaranteed to the south by the constitution and which cause secession wait but i thought it was just a compact and not like a founding document like that we must base all of our principles upon good point okay reject a book that says the south fought to hold her slaves but she didn't fight to let them go are that speaks of the slaveholder of the south as cruel and unjust to his slaves but he are that glorifies abraham lincoln and vilifies jefferson davis but i just it's very hard to not talk about this are rejects a textbook that omits to tell the south's heroes and their deeds i'm sure there was like heroic behavior on the battlefield sure like, I'm sure that there was that one guy who went back to get his buddy. Okay, so that's the one that's fine. <laughs> it's like, okay. So one of the facts they felt really needed to be in the textbook was that, quote, 
Southern men were anxious for the slaves to be free. They were studying earnestly the problems of freedom, and northern fanatical abolitionists took matters into their own hands. Mm. That's tacitly untrue. Like, it's absolutely false. That's not the case. They were None of this is the case. But None I mean, like, is that is so well documented. That is not really up for debate. It's like they didn't know you could access things eventually. Like, well, it was harder. It was hard, and that's the thing, is they were making this the only book, the book you read. But primary source documents do exist. I'm taught that's not the point. You're right. They're they're not actually trying to record history. No, they're trying to invent it. I'm sorry. I keep like the point is what are we going to indoctrinate? How do we explain this? How do we explain this shit? Yes. I mean they had to be frantic for it. Well, I mean, you have veterans saying if we don't do this, then all the Confederate soldiers will go down as as dishonorable. And traitors. Wait. They were traitors. But it was complicated. <laughs> as our friend Tarko Carlson so eloquently put it in our opening. They are creating a new history. Like they're and making it livable. Yeah. But then they would they would go to the extremes of inventing things, such as, you know, the that Lincoln was this vile Vulgar. Vulgar cynical tyrant who loved violating the Constitution. They would quote James Ford Rhodes, who was a prominent historian at the time, saying that he said the Emancipation Proclamation was not issued from a humane standpoint. Lincoln hoped it would incite the Negroes to rise against the women and children. It was intended only as a punishment for the seceding states. Now, this quote itself was completely fabricated. Oh, God. I mean, like, you know it's not true, but you don't know if a historian said it. Because that apparently was not a big disqualifier of historians saying things. So they just like made it up out of whole cloth and... Yes, and you know, a lot of people say that one of the reasons this happened and, and almost was allowed to happen is because it was a way to move past Reconstruction, to kind of reunite the United States of America. Because how are you friendly with half of a country that you call traitor? It would present a problem at Thanksgiving. Right? As William Black wrote, For white northerners, this meant abandoning Reconstruction, the period when the federal government intervened to protect freed people's lives and rights, and ceding the Negro question to white southerners. Oh, bad call, bad call. (laughs) As we know, erected a system of segregation backed by anti-black terrorism. So by abandoning Reconstruction, trying to form some sort of middle, neutral ground... You mean a median. Yeah. They allowed the South to reconstruct history. And the one famous line comes from Thomas F. Gaylor, who was an Episcopal bishop of Tennessee at the turn of the 20th century. And he claimed that before the Civil War, Americans said that the United States are. And after the war, they said the United States is. So this is when we become like one nation. And this is how this myth gets tied into American nationalism. And so this was always a point that I was never able to understand until reading so much for this episode. Growing up in the South, I never understood how you could be super patriotic and like really dig God Bless the USA by Lee Greenwood and have like a rebel flag. How do those two intermingle? And this is, this is how. Because it became an integral part of American nationalism in this weird backwards reconstruction 
of history to allow us to move on from the Civil War. It's like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Like, it's Monopoly, and you get to not do that. Well, we, we could take it back to the to the bad boyfriend analogy. <laughs> yeah, it's easier just, like, not to talk about it anymore, and, like, I let him keep her picture up and whatever. I mean, he's got those, like, photos on his phone. I mean, whatever. I don't have to look at him. And it is that it's that... There are obviously other ways we could have moved on, but at the time it was this passive allowance of it, of this reconstruction of history. I mean, the the North had to be afraid if they didn't get out to some degree that there would be some kind of civil war again. You know, there were so many riots and so much uprising. It had to seem like it was almost counterproductive to continue to try and... Yeah, and reconstruction is by any historian you ask, besides that one guy. That well, actually, yeah, I hate to play devil's advocate, but was was an utter failure. One of the reasons Andrew Johnson was impeached. He was the worst. The like worst. literally, the worst. <laughs> the worst. And you can really see these ideas hit full force with D.W. Griffith's "Birth of a Nation." Oh yeah, that little thing, which also helped be the birth of the KKK. Rebirth. You're right. But really, when it became big. Yeah, that's when it got national traction. It's when it was a brand. So so besides the monuments to the Civil War that were the children. They are the future. It's true. And so they've they've been educated. Teach them well and they will. Yeah, that happened. So then you get the more visible emblems of the Civil War. Again, branding. Yeah, and the monuments. And so there are monuments throughout the country. So the timing of the proliferation of these monuments can tell you a lot about what they mean when they popped up. So it's like counting a tree's rings. Sure. Or like considering historical context. Whatever. Same. Same. Same thing. Same thing. So now after the Civil War, of course you have monuments going up to the dead. Fair. Understandable. You were kind of a dick. You still get a tombstone. It's a rule. And even at that time, there was argument about if this even should be done. And it was done in a, a small fashion. You know, no huge amount of monuments were popping up. Like in the years immediately following. Exactly, right. exactly. And so we can go to Robert E. Lee to find out more about this. The statue of him? No, to him. Oh, His he was letters. a person? I'm not going to talk to him. Oh, okay. <laughs> we're not going in our machine again. Oh, maybe later. I want to say hey to Bobby. Maybe like, Bobby, don't you wish you wouldn't have done this? Don't you wish you would have gone with the North? Damn don't it. you regret your choices in life? So, it's a bitch, ain't it? Like, I want to do that. Can we just do a drive-by? Like, just real quick. No. Okay. Yeah. So after Lee became president of Washington College in Lexington, Virginia in 1865, he received many proposals for memorials, but turned them down. He thought that this would, quote, anger the victorious Federals. He wrote in an 1866 letter, As regards the erection of such a monument as is contemplated, my conviction is that however grateful it would be to the feelings of the South, the attempt in the present condition of the country would have the effect of retarding, instead of accelerating, its accomplishment, and of continuing, if not adding to, the difficulties under which the Southern people labor. It's going to stigmatize them, as we were saying. Like, if we memorialize this so we make this some big point of pride they're never going to take it seriously yeah he's like how is this going to heal 
And so three years... Man, he was on to something. Kind of don't want to do that drive-by now. All right. Three years later, he was asked to come to the Gettysburg Battlefield to help establish the memorial and kind of help kind of mark where troop movements were and things like that. And he refused. And he wrote a letter saying, All I think that can now be done is to aid our noble and generous women in their effort to protect the graves and mark the last resting places of those who have fallen and to wait for better times. He had so much more sense than the people that came after him. He was probably also very, very grateful that Ulysses S. Grant threw a fit and was like, no, 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 you're not going to try him for treason because that will make things worse. That will incite so much violence. It will make so many riots and things. I imagine him just that. like revving his neck yeah. from where the, where the noose would be yeah. as he is writing this letter. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Saying thank you. Oh. Maybe we really shouldn't piss him off. <laughs> they really they let me go, guys. Let's not egg him on. So I think it's, I think it's understandable that they're putting up grave sites. <laughs> no, I do <laughs> too. So for example, because we'll play a numbers game, of course. From 1865 to 1890... In North Carolina, 30 memorials were placed. Like we have the Port Hudson Cemetery like right by our house. Right. Okay. I think that'd be like one. <laughs> okay. And so during the next half century in North Carolina, 130 monuments went up. That's more. It, <laughs> that it, is a hundred more. It, the big significant rise, the first big rise of monument building was from the 1900s-ish to the 1920s. Oh, you know what else was rising then? Oh, please tell me. Flaming crosses in the KKK. And? Oh, and uh, feelings of, you know, xenophobia, desire for isolation, Jim Crow, you know, just little things like that. Important things. Yeah. So again, historical context. So at this time, you know, we're moving past that, kind of as you hear the different veterans saying they're dying out. We need to spread this noble lost cause myth story. Sorry, sorry, misspoke. My daddy would smack you upside your ear if he ever heard you call it a myth, son. Drink your mint, Jello. (laughs) So at this time, as the veterans are dying off, you see this huge rise. Also, there's a huge amount of racial tension with the Jim Crow laws going into effect. So here's a great example. In 1907, Richmond, Virginia, 3,000 children pulled a wagon bearing a statue of former President Jefferson Davis through two miles of a cheering crowd and brought it to its place on Monument Avenue. Wait, they carried the weight of their own history? They carried the weight of their forefathers, literally. Okay, yeah. All right, well, we're nothing if not poetic. Well, and for their troubles, quote, they were given a souvenir piece of rope. Oh, that's not a good thing to give a Southern kid. Like, They'd no. be kept in their homes no. by many of the children through the years oh. of the future. Hopefully that's where it stayed. Hopefully it stayed in their homes in a frame and was never used for any God. Okay. Now, one of those early monuments was put up in 1886 on the Capitol grounds in Montgomery, Alabama. And Jefferson Davis was there to lay the cornerstone. Did he give a speech? I'm sure he did. We'll get there later. In Anderson County in South Carolina, a monument was erected in 1902 that reads in part, The world shall yet decide in truth's clear far-off light that the soldiers who wore the gray and died with Lee were in the right. Yeah, I've heard that. Mm. Like, I've actually heard people say it. In rhyme? Yeah. (laughs) Like, it was like, 
along with learning all the words to Dixie. That was a thing that happened. Oh, um, that's good. So in the Montgomery Monument, there is a figure on top of the obelisk who is at least returning the sword. Hopefully, as a sign of surrender, possibly handing it back to the South, saying, rise again. So interestingly, there are monuments in the North to the Union soldiers. Well, sure. Yeah. In many small towns, there is a statue called the Silent Sentinel. He sounds noble. Yeah, it's just kind of a, a... A dude. A dude in uniform with a belt that has a U.S. on it. And he's just kind of a small kind of token in a lot of small towns in the north. No, interestingly, in many small towns in the south, there is a statue called the... The Silent Sentinel. Huh. He's kind of a, a dude. A dude, you say? In a uniform. Uh-huh. With a belt. It says CSA. Confederate States of America. Did they just... Did they just change the belt? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no! So as this early movement for monuments was really kicking up steam around the turn of the century, you had the most American thing... <laughs> That could happen. Somebody was like, you know what? I can make some money. Mm-hmm. The Monumental Bras Company in Bridgeport, Connecticut, decided to create this statue and just change the belt out. And it could be Union yeah, or Confederate. little changes, too. Not really. Even the hats for the same. They didn't even have the right hat on. And they charged $450. It was made of zinc. Oh, so like now they cannot still be standing sentinel straight, can they? Well, this is actually one of the reasons that they're so easy to topple because they're made really shitty. This is some carpetbagging Yankee coming down here to the south. Oh, he's selling to everybody. Yeah, oh, but I don't it's, care. It's the most, this is the most American thing you could do. Be like, you want a soldier statue? I can get you a soldier statue. This is something your friend David would do. But it also proves that... The statue, what it is of does not matter. No, it's <laughs> what, what it, it symbolizes. Yeah. But the ultimate such symbol of memorializing the Confederacy and the Lost Cause was unveiled in 1914 at Arlington National Cemetery. Okay. Like right by Lee's home. Yes. On June 3rd, Jefferson Davis's birthday, Union veterans joined Confederate veterans and members of the Daughters of the American Revolution and members of the United Daughters of the Confederacy, for the dedication of what was billed as a peace monument. I'm okay with a peace monument. Ah, but let us look at the peace monument and see that it really is a fantastic example of lost cause narrative. On top of this pedestal is a beautiful female figure facing the... South! South! She has an olive wreath, very Athenian, and she also holds... Pruning shears and a plow. And that is the symbol of reconciliation. Right. And she, there's a inscription, and they shall beat their swords into the plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. So this is a reference to uh, Roman general Cincinnati, mm-hmm. who Cincinnati is named after. And, and the Cincinnati and Club. The, yeah, the Cincinnati Society, yeah. who honored George Washington because he famously returned to be a planner. Well, he returned. Well, yes, but he returned the powers of the military. You know, so Maximus is based on that idea. The gladiator. Well, that idea. He wants to give up his power and go farm. And so around its base, 32 figures in this kind of relief 
They're soldiers. They're military officers kissing their children goodbye. Mm -hmm. Clergymen. A blacksmith with no shirt. Oh, of course. There are sweet bells fastening bayonets onto their bows. That's okay. that's a boy. That's, yeah. uh, I, I'm going to translate that. Yeah, bells tying things <laughs> on a bow sounds like two inanimate objects hanging out. There are southern women putting rifles on their boyfriends. Sure. sure. Fiancés, I'm sure. <laughs> Betrothed. Oh, uh, suitors. Suitors. Everyone's leaving their family behind, but also don't, don't get... There's a very purposeful inclusion in this. There are many loyal black slaves and... And weeping mammies to go around. Oh, no. Now on the southern base under the Confederate seal, it says to our dead heroes by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And in Latin, there's a phrase also hidden. You know, it's in Latin unless you can read Latin. You don't know what it says. And it says the victorious cause was pleasing to the gods, but the lost cause pleased Cato. Cato being a statesman and philosopher who was known for his morality. Right, and it's a quote from Julius Caesar. Is that like a damn man kind of quote? Like, is that a... I feel like it's like hidden, like it's in Latin, like unless you were like... Is it a, a Latin, Latin middle scholar, finger? Like, you wouldn't go up to this and be like, it says like they were wrong, we were right, just in Latin. <laughs> Basically, it kind of does. Yeah, it kind of does say that. So the group responsible for the majority of these memorials was the United Daughters of the Confederacy, among the most influential white women's organizations in the South. And this entire, this Confederate monument boom at the time was pretty much spearheaded by them. Because as one historian says, it was politically dicey for Confederate veterans to be seen as advocating for their former cause. The men want to be able to own property. They want to be able to vote. They can only do that if they've clearly laid down their arms and sworn allegiance to the United States. Women don't have to worry about any of that. They can't own property. They can't vote. So they hide behind their femininity and say, we just want a monument to have a place to lay our flowers. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> they are hiding behind some hoop skirts. So the role of the Southern woman, in addition to getting the monuments, is one that is quite fraught, but one that is quite prominent. The Southern Bell. It's where they keep the virtue. We promised you a microcosm, and a microcosm you shall have. Back to Natchitoches, Louisiana. Just outside of Natchitoches, Louisiana, at Melrose Plantation. This is a very complex little artifact. And before we get to the story, we've got to lay out another myth. Good. That's kind of what we do. Or a talking point, really. It is a favorite pastime of those who would absolve the Southern white people of their guilt, of the whole, you know, enslaving everyone of another race thing, to say, yeah, well, black people own slaves, too. Okay. Well, it's kind of true. It is. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry you have to give them that one. Yeah, get one. <laughs> you get one. Okay. But that wasn't common. It was definitely not something that the larger body politic in the South sought to protect. No one was worried about that, right? <laughs> no. And it was more common that they left the South. There weren't many, but a lot of them lived here. Well, Where? There, Natchitoches. Where we are, our microcosm. Our microcosm. So 
kind of already talked about how Louisiana has a really, really weird ethnic racial history thing happening. And that is so true. And we're about to see why. Before the Civil War, and there are lots of caveats to this, so come with me slowly. 40% of the heads of household in homes of free people of color owned slaves. That's more than I would have guessed. But remember, that's just heads of households, so there's not the total population of free people of color. And there aren't that many free people of color. <laughs> and that's just in Louisiana. Different in other states. Now, I keep qualifying this because, like I said, people love to bring this up when trying to justify slavery. And there is no justifying slavery. This does not mean that there were not mean white people in Louisiana that owned slaves. There were. This does not mean that owning slaves was any less atrocious than it was. It was. Disclaimer over. But there were other drivers of social inequality in Louisiana that made race less of a concern. And those included things like ethnicity, meaning the country that you were from. Because Louisiana has also been controlled by many people. Right. We were, you know, French, then we were Spanish, then we were French again, then we were like a territory, and then we were like a state, and it's just kind of weird. We've just kind of been everything. And you had things like people speaking different languages, Again, controlled by lots of different people. And you had things like so many people here being Catholic. That was a problem for the Anglos when they came. And then class was a big element, too. Right. It was very multi-tiered social hierarchy. And the group in power was just constantly shifting. But since 1714, my hometown, Natchitoches, has been kind of this little border town between the French and Spanish forts. This French fort is Fort St. John Baptiste. And the Spanish fort was Las Adias, and I literally have people who were original <laughs> settlers at both forts on my, in my family tree. So I'm just one person. Well, but and then between that, you have the Cato Adiacho, right? And I have that too. But just 30 miles away from the old Spanish fort, there is this other settlement, and it has an equally complex background, which has developed its own mythology. Absolutely. And the seat of the settlement is the Melrose Plantation. But the story starts before there is a big house, before there is Melrose. Almost 100 years before there is a big house. And for this exercise, we are going to need some vocabulary words. Are you ready? Let's go. All right. So the first word we have is placage. To place with. Yes. So this is a system that allowed common law marriages between French and Spanish settlers and native women, women of African descent, or women of mixed race ancestry in the colonies. Now, in ethnic communities, these were known as left-handed marriages, which, fair. <laughs> nice. Now, these women were not full wives, and a lot of times they would, like especially in New Orleans, where this practice is very common, they had country cottages and would not come into town for but formal social gatherings. Where they would be kept. Basically, but there was also a community of these women. Really? Yeah, and they had like their own social circles and their own rules and their own way of doing things. It's really interesting. But there were legal mechanisms in place that allowed the women and their children to inherit property or gain freedom, depending on their arrangement, if they entered into these relationships. And these weren't only seen in Louisiana, right? No, there were other places like Natchez, Mississippi, Biloxi, Mississippi, Mobile, Alabama, St. Augustine, Florida, Pensacola, Florida, 
and New Orleans. Another vocabulary word you're going to need, casket girls. The casket girls. Those are the girls that were sent over to, to marry the trappers and settlers. You need to know that word because not enough of them were. <laughs> and that's why we have our first word. Also, the Ursuline nuns who supposedly took care of these French girls who came over with their casket or their trunk, just their little belongings to come to this wilderness and marry settlers, say that never happened. <laughs> so interesting. This may mean that like all those people who are like, oh, yes, we are pure French. Yeah, I bet you are. Well, Huey Long, the kingfish. Uh-huh. Said once that you could feed all the, quote, pure white people in New Orleans with one cup of rice and one cup of beans. That's probably true. <laughs> he had a way with words, that Huey P. He had a way with a lot of things. Yeah, I did. So then we come to Creole, and this is specifically the Louisiana flavor of Creole. Right, because you'll hear that term used in different, like, islands. Well, and in anthropology in general. Yeah. And it is a an anthropology term of art. And it's used to distinguish between the people born in a colony and those who immigrated there. If your parents are both <laughs> French, right? Uh, hey, they were French. Uh-huh. Who are you looking at? And they both came to Louisiana and you were born here two years later. You are Creole. But that term changed over time. Yes, it did. And that kind of begins with the term being applied to people of African origin who were enslaved, who were born in the colonies instead of Africa. So it's applied as a more general term kind of for anybody born there. But then once I met you <laughs> yes, and like learned about your neck of the woods, I learned that that had a completely different context in this Natchitoches area where Melrose plantation is or microcosm we're talking about. Right. And in New Orleans as well, it can be a specific designation for kind of like light-skinned people of color who were of mixed ancestry at some point in their lineage. But New Orleans, they're more often called like mulatto. Right. As they were throughout the South. Or quadroons. Yeah. Things like that. But in Natchitoches, Creole meant that specifically. And you will meet people who cite their ethnicity as Creole. Yes, there's a very specific community in Cane River. And actually, there's some fantastic, I wish I knew the photographer's name, I'll post it, that did some fantastic photographic work. He had a grant um, of the Cane River Creoles right. outside of Natchitoches. And people will say, oh, like the, they call them like the river boys and things like that. <laughs> like when they talk about it, like it means a really specific thing. Incredible folk community, awesome Zydeco music, lots of horse riding. Really cool. But anyway, I digress. You needed to know that, though. You needed to know that for the purposes of this story. Now, it was so common in Louisiana to recognize this mixed race, third race thing that at one point in New Orleans, the designations that you could choose between, should you want to fill out a census form, you have to fill out a census form, were black, white, and mulatta. You will notice that there are some conspicuously missing races. <laughs> it's interesting that they even chose to include that one. Right. They were like, nah, Indian, nah. Nah, they're mulatta. Same, same, same. But then there was a woman at one point who went back and changed all the people who put mulatta to black, like by herself. It got weird. So this group moves between worlds. You'll see that referred to again and again in 
every article you read about Natchitoches, it's like there's the black community and the white community, and then there's this community that kind of moves freely. Now, mulatta, we've mentioned, is another word you probably need to know for the purposes of the story. This is someone of mixed ancestry, and people theorize that it comes from a similar root to mule. No. Aww. But it's because of the hybrid. No. It's bad. It's really no. bad. But That's but way with words, these Southerners. It's not Southern. It's Spanish. Damn you. <laughs> <laughs> I blame you, though. So just to kind of set our scene for where we're going with this, let's get a quote from a Creole civil rights activist named Rodolphe de Doom. So in his discussion here, Latin is going to mean anyone who speaks Romance languages. French or Spanish. Right. And Anglo is going to mean... Wasps. Right. The groups, Latin and Anglo New Orleanians, had two different schools of politics and differed radically in aspiration and method. One hopes, that's the Latins, and the other doubts, the Anglos. Thus, we often perceive that one makes every effort to acquire merits, the other to gain advantages. One aspires to equality, the other to identity. One will forget that he is a Negro in order to think that he is a man, and the other will forget that he is a man in order to think that he is a Negro. So it's a great way to set up the kind of thought process that was going on at this time. It's very different than you would see in the rest of the South. Yeah. And so this group of people lost really hard during the Jim Crow era. Yeah, that's when you get the the one drop rule. But that's in Virginia. Well, but there's the... But the sentiment The sentiment is, and the different connotations of it. Yeah. Yeah. So the Catholic faith kind of had a different way of thinking about things, and they really didn't even condone slavery of people who were baptized. Like, it used to be a really easy way to get out of slavery. <laughs> nice. Get out of jail free card. Right. Then they were like, yeah, we're going to have to fix that. Damn it. You almost had something right. <laughs> but there were very liberal attitudes in the colonies toward black people who were brought in as slaves. Like Liberal at the time. Liberal in the context. For example, there was the... Code Noir in 1685. And it was a document penned by one of the Louis, which outlined basically the rights of slaves and the rights of slaveholders and how the two should interact. And for example, it forbade anyone, including slaves, from working on Sundays and banned Jews from the colonies because we have to hate somebody. God damn. Forbade the splitting of families for sale. Like mothers and prepubescent children were not allowed to be separated, which is better than anybody in the Anglo section was doing. And it recognized marriages between male and female enslaved people, as long as their master did not object. And of course, I mean, you have to like just qualify all of this. It's like you did have these kind of like marriages in other parts of the South, and they were actually encouraged because they wanted them to breed. Oh, God, don't it's, say But that's breed. the truth. But that like, is what it is. They didn't want them to have kids and have a happy family. That's not what they wanted. In this context, they were allowed to stay as a family unit. Right, at least until the kids reached puberty, which is... So not really that. Now, one interesting caveat or provision of the Code Noir was that the rights of freed slaves were essentially the same rights as white people. And they didn't vote, and they couldn't marry white people. 
And this is in contrast to other areas in the South where a free person of color had very little rights, could very... This is in the North, too. Oh, right. Yeah. But I mean, where it was the worst. And they had to, you know, carry their papers on them all the time and could be questioned at any time. God, could you imagine if we had a society like that? Or risk, you know, being re-enslaved if they could not prove that they were a free person of color. Which is a really shitty Tuesday. (laughs) So when the Spanish took control in 1763... There was a very liberal period of race relations, and they enacted a set of laws called Las Siete Portitas, or the Seven Matches. Good, I couldn't translate that one. (laughs) (laughs) And they offered slaves greater protection from mistreatment by whites and made it easier for them to acquire freedom. And blacks who were already free could now serve in militias, which that was a huge worry for people. They were like, if we give them guns, they're going to kill us because we were really mean. Not that crazy of a thought. No, gotta get that one. Because we deserve it. And goody goody, they could buy and sell their own slaves. So the Spanish, the Spanish were the people who were like looking out for that right. (laughs) Now there was a law in the books that still forbade mixed race marriages. But did anyone really care? Not here. They're like, if the queen can't see it, who gives a shit? Now the Louisiana Purchase came about, you remember when Thomas Jefferson was like, I shall have that. And Francis like, yes, yes, please, we're broke. Yes. And we got, you know, a swath of land. Doubled the size of the country. Right. And that was a big deal. That happened in 1803. Now, one in every six people in New Orleans at the time was a free person of color. Wow. And the male population of free men of color were granted citizenship in the territory. At the time of the outbreak of the Civil War... And we are so poor and backward now that this blows my mind. Louisiana was the richest state in the Union. It's really not that crazy because it was the biggest, one of the biggest ports. It was the big port where everything was coming through. I mean, still, like, have you seen our roads? (laughs) And New Orleans was the third largest city in the country. Historian David Rankin determined from an 1850 census that of all American cities, New Orleans had the Highest percentage of free black males employed as artisans, professionals, and entrepreneurs. And the lowest in low opportunity occupations like laborer, mariner, gardener, servant, and waiter. New Orleans also contained more than a quarter of all free men of color employed as professionals, managers, artists, clerks, and scientists in the 15 largest cities in the United States. So, I mean, that is an oddity. Right. And it's because of the context. It's because of the historical context and what the laws have been and mm-hmm. what's been allowed as the norm for centuries under French and Spanish rule. So we need to draw a line and say relations between free people of color and European settlers, pretty okay in Louisiana prior to the 1830s. Especially comparatively. Relations between any of those people and people they owned sucks. Still shitty. Still shitty. Still shitty. No better. Really no better. I mean, there were like one or two things really no better. They're like, again, white people got nervous. <laughs> that keeps happening. There, you know, as Louisiana continued to be a state, there was an influx of Anglo-Americans. God damn it. They were given land grants and told to go fix the French people. <laughs> we were fine. <laughs> Sacre bleu. He keeps making mashed potatoes instead of rice. And as the Anglo-Americans grew in numbers, they grew in influence, and then people, you know, got the 
fucking vapors about, oh my God, why did they take slavery away? Because it seemed like that was a thing that could happen. And race relations did deteriorate, especially in more rural areas. Like Lafayette was one of the places that they were like, it was not so bad. And then it was real bad. I believe that. Yeah. New Orleans would continue to be the site of weird race stuff. For example, there was a French-speaking Creole of color community that backed the lawsuit filed by Homer Plessy. Famous Plessy versus Ferguson. Right. When he was like, I intend to ride this streetcar. And they're like, that streetcar is for white people. He's like, what's a white person? (laughs) You could feed all the pure white people here with one cup of rice and one cup of beans, he said. At which time the Supreme Court said, yeah, separate but equal. Damn it. (laughs) Carpet baggers. (laughs) But now back to our story. Wait, <laughs> Sorry. we're telling a story. I was going to. So, so historical context of our story: we have a in Louisiana a large population of free people of color, and not just sharecropping and things like that, and servant positions, but in high positions and in a higher class as the French uh, they would want to do, because that was really more what they were concerned about was mm. was class than race and as i'm reading that quote by david rankin and they're like there are scientists and there are artisans and they're all i can think is about fucking ray nagan being like new orleans i thought of that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so new famous so famously or before hurricane katrina the then mayor of new orleans ray nagan when asked about the kind of education system in new orleans which is notoriously terrible said all we need to do is educate people to, to be maids and taxi drivers How the mighty have fallen, Jacob. By the way, he was (laughs) African-American. So now that we've established that Louisiana's weird, let us look at Article 9 of the Code Noir. Free men who shall have one or more children during concubinage with slaves together with their masters who accepted it shall each be fined 2,000 pounds of sugar. If they are the masters of the slave who produce said children, we desire in addition to the fine that the slave and the children be removed and that she be sent to work at a hospital, never to gain their freedom. We do not expect, however, for the present article to be applied when the man is not married to another person during the concubinage with a slave, who he should then marry according to the rights of the church. In this way, then shall be freed the children becoming free and legitimate. So that is crazy. Weird. Very odd. Like, they're like, if you're married... You're ruined. Like, everyone's ruined. You're giving us, like, 500,000 pounds of sugar or whatever, and you're never going to have your freedom, and it's really a bad choice. But if you're single, man, have fun. But then you're married. But then she's free. Oh, I mean, it's good for her. Right? I guess. So so this really applies back to where we're going. Right. Right. And Melrose Plantation. Yes. Or what later will become Melrose Plantation. A plot of land on... Cane River, outside right. of Natchitoches. And this brings us to our heroine, Marie-Therese Coincoin. It's a fantastic name. It means second born. So most likely she was born in the French colony of Louisiana. Now there are arguments that she was perhaps born in Africa, but it seems unlikely as there is a baptismal record for her, and she is referred to as an infant at the time, in 1742. Now Marie was nicknamed Coincoin because it's a nickname commonly given to second-born daughters of the you people in western africa and so this makes 
people who are looking at this sort of thing think that at least one of her parents was you. Not, not Me? you. <laughs> not you. E W. She was the property of Louis Saint Denis, who was the founder of Natchitoches, Louisiana. And after his death, she was passed to his widow, and then to his son, and then to the DeSoto family. And she was in the employ, the inventory, if you want, of the DeSoto family in 1767, when a new French merchant arrived. And his name was Claude Thomas Pierre Matoire. And as luck would have it, Pierre was a bachelor. Seems like that's going to come into play. Right. So the DeSoto family was like, eh. He needs some help around the house. We shall loan Marie Therese to Pierre, and that's going to go well. And it did, I guess, in a way, because they began a relationship that was at least sexual, if not actually affectionate and romantic. And that lasted 25 years. Wow. So it seems like more than just a concubinage. Right, right. But maybe I'm reading too much into it. I don't know. So between 1768 and 1784, they had 10 children eight of whom survived into adulthood. Now, this is in addition to the three children that Marie-Therese had had prior to their meeting. And some records say that she had as many as five children already at the time. But she lived in Pierre's home and was treated as his common-law wife. Now, the placage system, as we stated, usually involved women being in country cottages. They were kept elsewhere. But she lived with him. And this ruffled at least... One priest feathers. Shocker. So Father Louis Quintanilla complained about their relationship, and it caused a little bit of a scandal, but Madame de Soto decided that she would let Pierre purchase his wife-lover person from her. Wow, this is crazy. It feels weird, right? It feels so messed up. And so she said, sure, if you buy her, you can have her. And that kind of made people feel a little better and ease the tensions. Which were considerable. The priest had actually called Coin Coin a public concubine and ordered her out of Medwire's home and wrote to several of his superiors requesting that he be able to publicly lash her. But none of that happened. There are no records of it happening. So in 1776 through 1780, Pierre set about buying all of his enslaved children from the DeSoto family. It's so weird. Now, the three oldest children that were not born of this union remained enslaved. But she and Pierre and their children lived together for the next decade. And she most likely took charge of running the plantation household during the time and had servants and slaves and things to wait on her. But in 1786, for whatever reason... I'm sure social pressures. Pierre decided he should probably just marry a French girl and Coin Coin was not going to live with him anymore. But he did give her a plot of land, which was very near his plantation home, and basically paid alimony to her. Interesting. So he kind of kept her, but I, don't know, I guess that we don't know if they continue to have a relationship. She didn't have any more kids, but know. she was 42. Hmm, hard to say. Hard to say. As the mother of at least 13 children, she decided that she was just, you know, going to become an independent agricultural maven. Wonderful. She built a house and started farming, raising indigo and tobacco. And then in 1793, she applied for a land grant from the Spanish government and was given additional acreage. And she also raised livestock like sheep. And tradition and some archaeological evidence suggests that she was very knowledgeable about 
healing practices cool that have very African roots. Now, normally, because of the emphasis placed on the Catholic faith in this French settlement, a lot of those folkways were very quickly stamped out. And if she is not of African origin, the idea that she could have learned it from parents is very interesting. So that was an important part of her character. But this is my absolute favorite. Wait a second. She's already kicking ass. <laughs> she's still owned by Pierre? No. So she's gained her freedom, gotten a majority of her kids free, has started her own farm. Built a house. She's kicking ass. Taking names. And she's practicing traditional healing. Which I think is amazing. What else could she be doing? Trapping bears. What? What? (laughs) She trapped bears. That's amazing. For their skin and for bear grease. They found vessels all around her property that were Native American in origin, but used for bear grease specifically. And there were stories of she and her sister trapping bears, like building bear traps and killing them and then trading with the Indians in the area. Amazing. So, yes, that's my favorite part of the story. (laughs) Now, she began the process of buying and freeing relatives who were still enslaved. She bought her daughter, Therese, and her grandson, Joseph, in 1797, and her granddaughter, Katichi, in 1794. And in 1795, she brought her sister and bear hunting partner, Marie Louise. Now, Coin Coin was able to provide freedom for three of her children with Matoire by agreeing to forfeit the annual payment that they'd set up years ago. So she was like, okay, just stop the alimony. I give, got it. Give me my goddamn kids. She's like, I got it. I don't need your you money. You want a bear? I don't need your money. I got bear. Give me my kids or I will stick my bear on you. This is where things get a little dicey. Eventually, she did acquire some slaves to work for her. They were not merely per- benevolent purchases for their freedom. And at the time of her dissolving her estate, she left them to children. She did not grant them their freedom. In her estate, she listed 12 slaves, but there were six male and six female, which people say indicate that family groups were stable and settled. And the lore, shockingly, around Cane River is that she was always very good to her slaves. That's but always that's what the everybody lore. says. But some of the more compelling and interesting writing I've seen on the subject states that she was a slave and she made it, so maybe she was like, they'll figure it out. I wonder if she like. I wonder if she gave them a chance to buy their freedom. I don't know. The, the records are very thin, so that is weird and controversial. And she sold her land, which was estimated to be about six hundred and forty acres, to a white neighbor. And she had lived next to another free man of color, and he had done the same thing. So, what happened to her descendants that she bequeathed the slaves to? And I assume probably a nice little chunk of cash and bear grease. Bear Grace, definitely. And her descendants would eventually amass an agricultural empire of more than 20,000 acres and 200 slaves. Louis Matoire built Melrose Plantation, which is still there to this day. You can go see it, should you ever want to. And it's this really striking example of French colonial architecture. Gorgeous. And there's also a lot of interesting work in the outbuildings, like the African House. What's that? The African house is this like little hut that's outside that has a roof that extends like 12 feet in every direction with no support. That's cool. So, and people say it's like a Congo style building. Hmm. And on like its National Registrar of Historic Places tag, it says the first African influenced building built by black people for the use of black people in the United States. All right. And then there has another really important element. 
The Clementine Hunter murals. And the extremely famous African-American folk artist. Female folk. Female folk artist. Really big deal. She lived to be 100, and she painted scenes of kind of like behind-the-scenes plantation life. Like the life that went on with the black communities surrounding plantations, baptisms, weddings, that kind of stuff. And there are giant installations there. Mm. Melrose would later go on to become an artist colony. Really? In the 1930s, and William Faulkner was there. Really? No one told me. That's cool. Like, I grew up right there, and no one told me William Faulkner used to hang out at Melrose Plantation. I would have gone down to check it out. And the other very important landmark that her family would go on to build is St. Augustine, which is a church in the Melrose area that was built by her son, Augustine, not named for him, though. And it is a absolutely gorgeous facility and it still serves as like a cornerstone of the Creole community and social life to this day. Her descendants were at the time of the Civil War the wealthiest free people of color in the United States. So her story is one that has gone into the realm of legend. Yes. For example, you will read that she was the Lady of Melrose Plantation. Which didn't exist yet. You will read that she was like put up there in style and that she was basically coffee-colored scarlet. But actually, she was a slave that was able to buy her children's freedom. Right, and fought bears. Which is a much better story. All of it. Not just the bear part. <laughs> that just adds a no, little pizzazz. Like, <laughs> you will, if you go, if, you, if ever you should go on the Natchitoches tour of homes, you will hear that like, oh, they just wouldn't. Let color divide them, and they were so in love, and this is the greatest love story ever told, and yeah, like he ditched her for a French girl, and made her buy her kids, and it's it's very fluffed up. And made to fit in the mold. Right. The mold that we've been talking about, that that definitely becomes a part of this southern myth. Of this, like, romantic plantation south of the the Southern Belle. And people may say to you, honey, that's just not true. And the only thing you can say back is, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. (laughs) Which brings us to our next point. Gone with the Wind. You're right. I hate this movie. Why? It's too long. The costumes. (laughs) The costumes, Jacob. It's too long. One does not simply edit Vivian Lee. Okay, so as you can tell, I'm quite fond of the film Gone with the Wind as I grew up on it as if it were the story of Moses parting the Red Sea in my biblical Baptist-loving household. Now we must return to the place where they keep the virtue. The Southern Belle. The white Southern Belle, let's be clear. They are white, they are women, they are Southern, therefore inherent virtue. I can see your virtue right now. How did I cover that up? It's just beaming off of you. Are you sure? You're glistening. <laughs> and the myth that the white woman and her virtue was not only used to justify racism by engendering fear in the aristocratic white community that freed men of color would absolutely, definitely, like 100%, like no, like 1,000% for sure, definitely rape their wives and daughters. Like, definitely. They're all just rapists. The part of this that is not as often repeated today is that white guys wrote, if we have to go off and fight this war and leave our daughters and wives unattended, they're going to run away with the slaves. They are going to run away with these black guys like 
100%. Wait, that doesn't even make sense. <laughs> if we stop watching them for two seconds, have you seen their calves the size of cantaloupes? Hi. <laughs> God, this is so ridiculous. These two things don't even line up. You can't do both. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the reasons that they may have thought that this would happen is because they were doing it, but it was very functional for this reason. It was also very functional because it put women on a pedestal. So in many cases, their husbands, sons, brothers, etc. were engaging in sexual relations read abuse with female slaves read rape yeah i think there's a little projection here yeah they're like surely slow projection surely Susanna fay will run away with marcus <laughs> the second i turn my back because i have been in that cabin like seven times this week <laughs> yeah um so it's really from an unseemly place that we build this myth lots of anxiety about interracial sex projected and otherwise i mean this was catchy this was a catchy tune and people were singing it because it painted black men in such a negative light yeah clear villain right and then you got a clear victim and then you have a clear hero right protecting the virtue because the white men couldn't be the victim because like even they were like yeah like no one's gonna buy that (laughs) wait that goes against everything i see now and on twitter but white men are always the victim (laughs) Well, right, because this the, the big bad North came and took away all their rights. Uh, of course. Yeah, this we can do a whole other episode on how the Civil War created the man baby. <laughs> fragile masculinity. Yeah. Oh my God, this is all fragile masculinity. <laughs> yeah. But by granting the black and white men all of the agency in this narrative, the bell becomes this sort of like pure blank canvas to be painted upon. Right. She's, she's where they keep the virtue. She's empty-headed, agency-free, and just a martyr in waiting. And you like this movie? (laughs) Scarlet is... Okay, we'll get there. Now, this powerful story was very present in the lead-up to the Civil War and was the argument against emancipation. You know, they can't let these black men free. Oh, right. I mean, then that continued on. I mean, you see, I, I said it a few times in quotes earlier about the textbooks. It really gained like widespread public currency after Birth of a Nation, which does that is the plot line. Feature this plot line: the female protagonist in the movie throws herself off a cliff when a black man proposes to her. It's so terrible. Like that was for real. They were like, "Yes, now that's drama." That's what a good Southern Belle would do. I would never throw myself off a cliff. I don't care who proposed. Anybody. Oh, like, I'd be like, no, fuck you. <laughs> you throw them off a cliff. I might. I might throw a bear at them. And so in Birth of a Nation, we get introduced to the KKK as the defenders of white womanhood. If you will recall, they took this job really, really seriously. I mean, it was one of their main tenets. Yeah. It was their tagline and their first big marketing push. After the myth was so embraced in the 20s and 30s in the KKK literature, it was all tarted up and presented to a brand new generation when the movie premiere of the Metro Golden Mayor classic Gone with a Win hit Atlanta, Georgia, like Sherman. And you, Wait, what? What? <laughs> you like this movie? Shut up. The costumes, Jacob, the costumes. When historian writes, for generations, Americans who grew up on Gone with the Wind, idea of the Southern Belle is inextricable from the image of Scarlet at the barbecue. 
Her big dress, the verdant plantation, and her coquettish charm. In the image, Scarlet stands out against the classic background of rolling green hills and the beautiful plantation of Terra. Exactly. <laughs> so we see Scarlet like in the sea of suitors, but never, never engaging with one when she is this pure coquettish belle. And in this way, her virtue gets bottled. And we distance her from this kind of like terrestrial carnal being. We make her a more ethereal presence. And we distance white women from the role of wife and from the role of mother. It seems so like backwards. Oh, no, no, no. They're just to look at, not to touch, not to work. We need. Seems boring. (laughs) No one asks you. Meaning the bell. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm that smart. Everyone asks me everything. I'm a white guy. I'm a white guy. I am, I am the answer. So because we can't have our bell getting dirty doing this mothering thing, we get the figure of the mammy. And this is why it's so integral to Scarlet. She is the mother figure who does the dirty work of actually parenting. Academy Award winning actress. <laughs> yes, it's true. And... You know, that's why it's so necessary that we see her in contrast to Scarlet. We see the maternal figure degraded into this like servile, menial character. By doing this, by outsourcing this work, the Southern Belle becomes even more mystical. She's not born. She never gives birth. She just kind of blooms in some wild magnolia cabbage patch. Magnolias grow on trees. Look, I wrote this. Okay. And her sexuality exists only for the presentation, like a flower to a bee, just to attract them, never to actually be taken out of the box. So we can't taste any nectar. No, no, no. That is definitely not allowed. So how this happens, how we get a figure that is so prudish, so far removed from the terrestrial plane that she can't even mother, the female figure who can't even mother, is we take the Victorian ideas about womanhood. These ideas that industrialization was going to make everyone dirty and greedy and wrong and bad. And so we needed to elevate the nuclear family and the hearth and home and female nurturing. So you take those and you throw them out in the middle of a cotton field, in the swamp, in the heat, where bad shit really is going on all around. Lots of violence, like even in a domestic sense, there are people being held against their will. On a daily basis. And everything is unsure and changing all the time. And the industrialization of the North is threatening us. And, oh God, what are we going to do? So you take the level of anxiety about industrialization. Put it on a little island in the middle of a cotton field. Wait for white people to get nervous. And then you get a Southern bell. <laughs> it's a complicated recipe. Really, the waiting for white people to get nervous is not I mean, hard. Yeah, no, that's not hard. Yeah. So in the South, industrialization was not as prevalent. But it did kind of... Threatened to raise the economy of other areas of the country to be more competitive with them. However, this like industry is dirty thing carried over in a weird way where this like agrarian pastoral means of making a living. Right, like what you think of as like the aristocratic southerner in his white linen suit, sitting on his porch around his plantation, drinking his mint julep, watching the slaves work. So much better than machines doing it. Maybe we should get some machines. No, that's a dirty. Those will make you greedy. Bring me another mint julep, no. baby. Jasper, get my coon dog. 
But it became like this sign of moral superiority to be agrarian. It became equated with being virtuous. And you still see that today. Right? An honest living. Exactly. So the delicate bell as the purest flowering of this agrarian virtue became like a supercharged virtue maven. And she could not be separated from her station of idleness, of the lady of leisure. Well, she took one step off that pedestal. She was just going to run away with some black guy. Jasper? (laughs) Not you at two, Jasper. Yeah, or she would wither or at least swoon. Oh, yeah, lots of swimming. Much swimming. It was hot. <laughs> it was fucking hot, and they wore tight courses. But in the post-war South, racial hierarchy demanded racial purity. Back to that one-drop rule. That's a good one. And so social status was, in theory, more fluid, because now, supposedly, the North wanted these black people to be, like, all equal and stuff. Whatever. Literally what the South said. <laughs> Literally. Hand me another mint julep. Jasper. Where's Jasper. <laughs> Oh, so even, he went and got his own plantation. I don't even know what goes in a mint julep. <laughs> I assume it's some julep. What the hell's a julep? Does anyone know where the julep tree is? I need some julep. <laughs> Sir, your daughters run off with Jasper and they started their own plantation and now they have more money than you. Wake up, daddy, wake up. <laughs> oh, 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 I, oh. Did you have the dream again? I did. <laughs> Was your coon dog talking? He just kept whistling Dixie. Oh, Shenandoah does love to do that. Get over here, Fall Shenandoah, Bubba God the Third. <laughs> do you know? The, do you know what the dog's really thinking? God, I hope these white people don't get nervous. <laughs> so it's hard to imagine the Lost Cause myth without the myth of the Southern Belle. It definitely became an integral part, and especially with Gone with the Wind. Right, and I think there was something about like offering up the the victims, you know, these women to the north. I mean, like, look, they didn't know any better. Are you going to be mean to them too? That sort of weirdly worked, you know, when they were trying to find that middle ground. Like in the same way that they just wanted a place to lay their flowers and not to, you know, glorify the cause. Right. So they became this like unofficial ambassador for the idea of the Southern myth. And their struggle for purity, their struggle to maintain their virtue became the struggle of the South. It was noble to Cato. Yeah, because, I mean, just like we mentioned earlier, it's like they could be the symbol. Because if you put a a nice man in his dress grace, it's not hard to think that that guy killed some people. (laughs) That guy rebelled. You have a nice woman that just went along with things. Hi, we're Bell and Rebell. Pick one. (laughs) Okay, so in order to equate this this story, this fragile little Bell story with Scarlett O'Hara... You have to scrub like the last two hours of the movie. You have to like ball it up, throw it away. It's the setup. It is the setup from which point she becomes a dynamic character. And the story's only real value is in the feminist reading of it. Like if you want history, look elsewhere. None. (laughs) Look elsewhere. They did burn Georgia. That happened. That happened. But look at what happens to Scarlett. Look how far off that pedestal she comes. Like she opens a lumber mill. She's tattered. She's torn. She's making dresses out of curtains in order to preserve the illusion of the old South. You know, like she is definitely, and she's doing it with her own two hands, you know? And ultimately she loses that control, this delicate power that she had to strike in order to control the men around her and have any hope of 
Our making agency. it. Yeah. She loses her ability to control her lovers by stepping down too far from that pedestal. We get the famous line, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Because who would? She is a ruined woman. So you see that here we have truncated the story of Scarlett O'Hara, the most iconic bell there ever was. Just the same way that Coincoin's story got kind of abridged and she became like an, a symbol of unstoppable love and, you know, plantation grandeur. When in reality, she was way, way more badass than that. But the parts of the legend that seemed like most interesting to the rest of the world were definitely the barbecue Scarlet. This barbecue Scarlet in her pure white dress, surrounded by men in drab suits, shining in the sunshine, where she literally has like a white flower around her waist. No symbolism. No, no symbolism at all. It's like a delicate little magnolia or maybe a white camellia. Not saying you should join the order of it. Whatever. And you even have like her hat is tipped back at this awkward angle and it's lit from behind and it very much looks like a medieval halo. Mm -hmm. Like she is pure. She's so original. Like it's ridiculous. But But that's the part that continues on. That's, yeah. And that's, that's the part. That's the part people were interested in when they started using this imagery in advertising after Gone with the Wind. And it was very widely used in all kinds of marketing to women. Avon used it for a bit. There were some plantation-themed ads. And then there was actually a brand called Old South Toiletries. Oh, good. Where romance lives forever. Oh, shit. And guess where that one was out of? Georgia? Fifth Avenue, New York. Of course I was. Oh, yeah. And you can have, like, cotton cologne and plantation garden dusting powder. I'm guessing they didn't have a blood, sweat, and tears smell. Yeah, no. Toil. Toil. Oh, de toilet. And so the myth of the Southern Belle continues to live on. And we see it today in cotillion balls and Southern Heritage parades and festivals. Oh, an old South night of the fraternities. Oh, don't forget about that. That really happens, guys. Oh, yes, it does. And and you and I attended the Cotillion Ball in Natchitoches. Yeah, I was a debutante, which is hilarious, but whatever. It was just what you did, <laughs> as they say. But you do hear that, well, if we had just been left alone, we could just live down a little southern bubble forever. Well, I think it's interesting because, like, I don't feel like I can really agree on the borders of the Southern Bubble. Like, I'm pretty sure Texas is not invited to my bubble. Like, it's such a different thing. Like, they would rather be cowboys than Confederates. And I just don't know that that works in the Southern Bubble. <laughs> I mean, it's not like you can go to somewhere completely foreign and just start this. Like, it has it's innately tied to the landscape and the feel of the South. It can't just grow wild somewhere. But it can. What? On the enough. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so, you tell me about an island somewhere where they're like... It's close. It's oh close. God. So what if we just pretended the, the Civil War never ended and we just could go on about our ways? Well, some people tried to do that. No. Oh my God. Wait, wait, wait. Did they fucking go to South America like a bunch of Nazis? Uh, they were the original Nazis. Shit. A fucking mile. <laughs> so as one descendant wrote... Helpless under military occupation and burdened by the psychology of defeat, a sense of guilt and the economic devastation wrought by the war, many felt they had no choice but to leave. Many? Oh, many. So the Southerners had, of course, a knowledge of agriculture, and that made them a very attractive asset 
to South America and Central America. And so many, many countries in the South, more South. (laughs) Shut up. Does not exist. More South. False. (laughs) Go keep going. Courted Southerners at the end of the Civil War to come stay. Come on by. It's nice down here. (laughs) We will never mention your war. Of northern aggression again. Just bring your plow. So you have places like Mexico, Honduras, Venezuela, all trying to get these disaffected Americans over. And they did send a lot of scouts to these areas to check it out. See if it was a good idea. They never came back. They did. Oh, they were like, we're staying. They just came back just to get people, really. So they decided, whenever all the Scots came back, that the best place to go would be Brazil. Brazil! Daddy, I hate to tell you, but these juleps are bullshit. Have you ever heard of a margarita? (laughs) It's fantastic. So Emperor Dom Pedro II wanted to start cultivating cotton and sugar to go along with it. And so he really wanted to get the Confederates to come down and start this agricultural process. So he gave them breaks on transport. Cheap land, tax breaks, come on down. And they did. I cannot believe this shit. Brazil was a strong ally to the Confederacy during the war, harboring and supplying rebel ships. And slavery was still legal in Brazil. I mean, if the shoe fits, jump with those feet. Now, they did stop any new slaves from coming in in 1850, but it was still legal in the country. And they also promised to build roads and trains and all this perfect things for to get these confederates down to come start these plantations hell there were no roads and trains here it's estimated that between 10 and twenty thousand confederate Shut americans the fuck up fled to the sao paulo area in brazil after the american civil war men like colonel william norris a former alabama senator ezekiel piles the final military escort for the confederate president jefferson davis H.F. Stigall, a Confederate spy. George Barnsley, an assistant surgeon in the 8th Georgia Infantry. The spy needed to go. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's not just like a few like random farmers went. Like, these were some top Like a former senator. And, uh, yeah. Most immigrated from Alabama, Texas, Mississippi, Georgia, and South Carolina. They sailed there on various range of ships. It's 5,600 mile voyage. Some of them made it no problem. One ship, the Neptune, sank in a storm off the coast of Cuba, taking with all of their passengers except for 17. And the ship, the Margaret, had an outbreak of smallpox and killed everybody on board. (laughs) But for the ones that made it, they had a glorious fanfare to their arrival with brass bands playing Dixie. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) One former Confederate general called in his diary, Balls and parties and serenades were our nightly accompaniment, and whether in town or in the country, it was one grand, unvarying scene of life, love, and seductive friendship. Go on. (laughs) One other ex-Confederate, Andrew McCollum, wrote in his diary in 1866 on July 4th, The sun rose over the mountain bright and clear, and the veil below us a dense fog hid the landscape from view. All around nature in her grandest dress presents a landscape more pleasing to the painter than the planter. 
and I feel more independent here, surrounded by the lofty mountains with an imperial flag and ample folds floating over me, than I could in my native land, under the miserable, trying, now prevailing, but dominant over every vestige of constitutional liberty. Happy July 4th. Yeah, they weren't traitors. They were just like, you know, taking a break. God damn, if that southern voice didn't survive the trip. <laughs> oh, it did. Now, we said that Brazil still had legal slavery. But just like Louisiana has these really odd race relations, so did Brazil. And still does. And this shocked the Confederate sensibilities. Because <laughs> you'll notice they didn't go from Louisiana. <laughs> so, and sent many people back to the United States. They and just could not handle they couldn't it. couldn't handle it. About half of the people went back. But for other reasons, too, we'll get to. So, one prospector wrote of Brazil in the Galveston Triweekly News. The black, who some admit will one day be our equal here, will already be found occupying the foremost and most honorable walks in society. Although the white fears he will someday cast his ballot on the same box with him here, he will find him not only voting there, but making laws. Laws to govern whites who go there. Cool. Wait, no. 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 But there were people trying to get more Southerners to go further Southern. (laughs) Dude, this is like the only time in history we've ever been wanted anywhere. (laughs) Dr. J. McGaston wrote a book, Hunting a Home in Brazil, that was published in 1867. And it was a popular travel book that encouraged immigration to Brazil. And he concluded it by writing, Though slavery may be destined to cease in Brazil at some future day, by gradual emancipation, yet the elements of society which have resulted from the mastery of the white man will never be erased entirely from the people. There is a dignity and hospitality among these people that correspond in many respects to the lofty and generous bearing which characterized the southern gentlemen in former times. We find people in Brazil capable of appreciating the southern character and ready to extend a cordial greeting to all who come. So were they not brown? They were a rainbow. That's why half of the people went back. (laughs) Okay, but like, they were okay with brown? Just not black. Well, kind of. So one of the things that happened when they got there is they really kept isolated. Like some of the professional people took up jobs in Sao Paulo and you know led professional lives, but other groups went off to create these plantations, create their own little communities. So they really didn't have to go interact with the other people very much. They wait. They just wanted to be left alone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we still see that. Okay. Cool. So they went off and. They didn't know the land, they didn't know the territory, and they just set them up places. And most of them failed miserably. Cool. And that's another reason a lot of people went back. But one community, the Norris Colony, was started by Colonel William H. Norris of Alabama, who left the U.S. with 30 Confederate families and arrived in Rio de Janeiro on December 27th of 1865. And he established the Norris Colony. It was very well planned. Mm. He actually like put some thought into it. Cool. <laughs> Unlike everyone else and so some of the people that had failed plantations moved in with him expanded that area some went back but the problem is that you know emperor don pedro he was promising a lot yeah big promiser mm-hmm. then he got into the war of the triple alliance yeah and then he got sick yeah and um so a lot of those things didn't happen but there was the brass band when they got there. Yeah, that was nice. <laughs> that was nice. And eventually, you know, the the Norris colony was so fruitful that they they did eventually get a train track, and then that helped them grow even more. So when did they like die out? What do you mean? Like how long did this last? Like thirty. What do you? 
What do you mean? Like it, it didn't die out. No, shut up. <laughs> no, shut up. No, shut up. They're there. The Confederados. No, shut up. They're there. It. They're. Yeah. They're still there. <laughs> yeah. It's. It's. Are they next door to the Nazinos? Yeah, I mean they live. They live in Americana. Uh uh-uh. uh They live in Americana. It's. It's. It's nice. It, I hear it's nice. It's nice. Yeah. <laughs> confederados live in americana like they don't live in they don't live in confederado like even still they're like well so the name was kind of given to them by the Uh people and it just kind of became the name of the area well i mean they were the confederate states of america i guess they didn't like shirk it completely but still it's like even now we insist on being a tumor attached to the united states but so all the ones that stayed of course First few generations kind of kept to themselves, mm-hmm. kept isolated. But after that, nah. 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 It started to intermingle. Cool. It started to become incorporated into the wider society and marrying Brazilian people, mm-hmm. etc. But they kept that rebel spirit alive. There was a brief Brazilian civil war that erupted in 1932 as the state of Sao Paulo tried to secede. God damn <laughs> Stop it! Many of the Confederate descendants, such as Roberto Stagall, fought on the side of secessionists. Stagall's tombstone reads, Once a rebel, twice a rebel. Okay, it's pretty badass, actually, I have to admit. Like, as uh, epitaphs go, that's pretty okay. But, stop it! But, you, you know, you mentioned the speech. Guess what? No. Many linguists no. have traveled down there because it is a bubble of 19th century Southern English. I want to go. Oh my God, I want to go. Guess who went? Who would be the best person to ever go there? Former President Jimmy Carter. That would be the best person to ever go there. (laughs) Former President Jimmy Carter when he was Governor Jimmy Carter. Why? Did travel. Why did he go? Well, he was was visiting Brazil and he went went and stopped by in 1972 when he was Governor of Georgia. And, you know, he saw the Confederate monument in Americana, which is like an obelisk with rebel flags on it. Oh my God. God. And he, he said, with literally, with tears in his eyes. No, Jimmy. The Aww. most remarkable thing was, when they spoke, they, they sounded just like the people in South Georgia. And one, one linguist said that their language was preserved in aspic. <laughs> which is a traditional Southern dish. But, speaking of, many other American Southern dishes have become very popular in Brazil from this influence. <laughs> such as chess pie. And southern fried chicken, and they did establish many Protestant Baptist churches there. Good Lord. Along with their own cemetery, because they weren't allowed to, to bury, bury in the Catholic cemetery. Catholic. And out of that Confederado cemetery, they have also have a church in a, a campo, which is like a cultural center. So they, they all speak Georgian. <laughs> it's starting to phase out a little bit. No! Many, many spoke it, especially when Jimmy Carter went... That was their language, and they also spoke Portuguese. And now it's kind of intermingling, but they do have people that will send their kids to English school, like on purpose to preserve that culture. I really, I want to go and like, I want to go just to hear them talk. Like that's that's the main thing. Many like, linguists have, and, no, and just, so the oh Confederados have at their campo, at their cultural center, an annual festival called the Festa Confederada, and it is a huge celebration of their heritage so do they say that they fought the war for states rights or slavery they don't go into it why would they they don't have to be accountable for anything well they do go into that they have confederate flags people wearing confederate uniforms 
hoop skirts. They have all the South American food. When you the bands are all playing Dixieland, Yellow Rose of Texas, Cumberland Gap. Uh uh-uh. uh. Whenever you get there, you trade in your Brazilian rails for Confederate dollars. Shut up! This is amazing. Don't worry, the exchange rate's one to one. Oh my god. Vendors are hawking rebel battle flags, Confederate campaign caps, t shirts, bumper stickers all emblazoned with the slogan, Hell no, we won't forget. <gasps> and one very popular slogan that you'll see around also is heritage not hate yeah and but do they do they heritage not hate yes they actually do and that's it, that's what is so interesting about this to me is that you know during those times we were talking about 40s 50s that's when the kkk picks up the rebel flag and that's when you have george wallace and his rebel flag god damn george you wallace get that incorporation of that into the kind of white supremacist culture it wasn't always there. It came 80 years later. And that is way after the Confederate autos moved, which was literally at the end of the Civil mm-hmm. War. And so while, without a doubt, things like the rebel flag have this very white supremacist hate imagery, it's not tied to it there. Because it's never been tied to it there. Like, they got their way. They didn't need to be bitter, I guess. Like, it, I don't know, it didn't ferment the same way it did here yeah it was never used in such a way there and they've never experienced that racial tension and at the entrance of the fiesta you have they have bodyguards and they're allowing people in and they have a book that outlines in portuguese 42 white supremacist symbols and if they see ss iron cross swastika kkk symbolism they are not allowed into the festival shut up and that has been a problem in years past to where they had to kick them out. If we screen for that shit here. <laughs> so Confederado Thomas de Gaulle explained that he's sometimes hesitant about revealing the heritage to fellow Brazilians as he recognizes that the flag means racism in the United States and represents a lot of bad things in the United States. And I say we're not in the United States. We're in Brazil. But to really summarize that, I have another descendant who learned that perfect english 19th century south georgia before he learned portuguese it said actually we're the most southern and the only true unreconstructed confederates that there are on earth we left right after the war and we never pledged allegiance to the damn yankee flag (laughs) (laughs) so it's interesting because in this community you have this this heritage that is separated from all of the hate that came after. Well, it didn't try to be American. They never tried to reconcile that. They, never they were like, away. they owned it. They were like, yeah, we were really sick of their shit. So we just left. But here is like, we needed to create like this, this myth of being wrong, being victimized, being disenfranchised in order to reconcile. And a huge part of that reconciliation, and we've mentioned it prior, is that great, great Turner phrase, States rights. States rights, y'all. And you may say, you could ask anybody at a KKK rally and they'll tell you that the Civil War is fought over states' rights. Yeah, funny how you're here hating black people saying that. But in a Pew Research Center survey in 2011, 48% of Americans thought that the Civil War was started over states' rights. And 38% cited slavery. Yeah, okay, let me tell you about the first time I ever heard about states' rights. Please tell me. So, let me tell you. 
when I was but a wee thing, I was fond of reading biographies of famous Americans because I was a weird, weird kid. Were? I'm a weird, weird adult. Oh, God. Now you have a weird, weird kid. Yep. I do too, apparently. And I was particularly fond of reading about Abraham Lincoln. I found him very interesting. Like constitution violating heathen? Yeah, I liked him because he taught himself to read and lived in log cabins and things. I identified with him. And having read several books on Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War and things like that, it was in about fourth, third or fourth grade. And Wishbone had just gone off on PBS. Best show ever. Best show ever. And what aired after Wishbone? Where in the world's Carmen? No, where in time is Carmen San Diego? Yes, yes. Where in the world was a little before us? Where in time is Carmen San Diego? Which was a game show based around the very popular educational CD-ROM that was distributed to every elementary school you can in creation. A, you can win a free chip to Natchitoches. Okay, so they're doing Civil War. That's where in time Carmen was that day, and they're like, "What was the cause of the Civil War?" And first kid buzzes in. is like, slavery. And they're like, I'm sorry. That's incorrect. No. And my face was like, what the fuck? And another kid buzzes in. is like, states rights. And they're like, that's correct. And I was like, what does that mean? Oh, my God. I've never heard that. this. PBS-y liberal rag. Right? And the first time I heard this lie was on PBS. And I feel really weird about it. But, I mean, as we talked about, it was a huge, huge component of the lost cause myth and was pushed in all of the textbooks Mm -hmm. and was taught to everybody. Because, I mean, if slaves liked to be slaves and and masters were just kind kind folks, and, I mean, why would there even be a war about slavery if that was true? Yeah, it's true. Okay, fine. Fair. I get your point. Let's write it in every textbook ever. So can very easily disprove this well here's one before we get to the like was it slavery or was it states rights how about did the confederates even really think states rights were a cool thing no good question no they didn't actually some of the first documents that you see appearing when they're trying to get some kind of compromise pre-civil war and people are trying to strengthen the runaway slave laws and that kind of stuff in order to appease the southerners The main thing that they cite is that the federal government does not recognize their property and the federal government doesn't do enough to protect their property and that the federal government has abandoned them and that they wish that there were a stronger federal government in order to better protect their property. And how dare they say that any state can make a choice about whether or not to return a slave and how dare they? So that debunks the state's rights. And how about the the slavery question is also very easily debunked. Because all you have to do is actually look at the declarations of secession. Okay. From many states. Here's two. That sounds fun. Hold on. Everybody take a deep breath. This is going to (laughs) be some racist shit. Texas. We hold as undeniable truths that the governments of the various states and the Confederacy itself were established exclusively by the white race for themselves and their posterity. That the African race has no agency in their establishment, and that they are rightfully held and regarded as an inferior and dependent race. And in that condition, only could their existence in this country be rendered beneficial or tolerable. Mississippi's Declaration for Causes of Secession, our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. Goddamn Mississippi. So, Alexander H. Stevens 
who was the vice president of the Confederacy. Wait, there was a vice president? Of course. But I thought Jefferson Davis just came down on a cloud in a gown and they were like, you forever and always. I thought he was like the king of all the slavers. Oh, we'll get to Jefferson Davis in two seconds. Okay, I'm sorry. I just didn't know there was a vice because I thought Jefferson Davis was immortal. (laughs) In stone. Oh, oh. (laughs) So he gave this famous or infamous cornerstone speech on Mm. March 21st of 1861. Our new government is founded upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man. That slavery subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. What's dude's name? Alexander H. Stevens, vice president of the Confederate States of America. Fuck you, Alexander H. Stevens. Like, I just wanted to be sure I was getting it right when I said it to his fucking ghost. You know that guy's a ghost. Like, he does not get to go anywhere. He's in Brazil. See, Jefferson Davis did not come down from a cloud. He came down from Washington, D.C. Right. Because he was a career politician. He He was a West Point graduate. West Point graduate, military man. He served as Secretary of War under Pierce. He was a, yeah, and he was a former congressman and former senator from so he Mississippi. Was, he was quite the little weasel politician. He, he was wily. He was a weasel. <laughs> well, fair. He was good at being a politician, one of the reasons he became the president. Now, he was really cautious about declaring slavery as a pivotal issue. He's one of the big pushers of the states' rights idea. Much more palatable to the general population of of the world, he says. And that's important because he made it like a property rights issue. Now, of course, the property rights he was worried about was his massive amount of slaves that he owned. Yeah, well, that'll do it. He was sure that under Republican rule, quote, property and slaves would become so insecure as to be comparatively worthless. And now as the president of the Confederate States, he did not want to be overtly pro-slavery because... That would might split the Southern population. Right, because people who own more than 13 slaves was like 6% of the population. Very small. Well, only a third owned any. Right, and a Even lot of people one. had like one or two. Yeah. Not that that's okay. No, <laughs> <laughs> we're not suggesting that that's okay. But we're just saying that they probably weren't going to go fight for their right to have one or two right. people. But it also could alienate their European allies because Europe, big fan of the Confederates because they needed the cotton and they hated the United States. Yeah, because they like did that whole thing where they seceded from them. That leaves a wound, you know? And may I just say that in all of these declarations of secession, there were no such accommodations as the Declaration of Independence where they're like, in friends, peace. No. (laughs) No. No, none of that. And so with this... I mean, they completely debunked the idea that there were our happy slaves, happy mammy, mm-hmm. taking care of the children, taking the motherly role, and that slavery is not what the Confederates were fighting for. But the myth, the myth of the happy slave continues on to this day. Right. As you can see on any, any news station that you would like to watch. Any I've never heard it on MSNBC. <laughs> you just missed it. You're right. One of their like people they brought on to yeah, rebut it yeah, was like, no, yeah. no, no. And like you know, there's like one account of one guy who was really into it. That's like the same account that everyone's used to perpetuate this for a thousand years. <laughs> like, well, no, no, it's it's Ms. like Melrose. I mean, that's the myth right yeah. there. She was happy. She got her kids. 
it was a love that color could not divide. No. <laughs> so back to our microcosm. Nagamish, Louisiana. All right. Let's talk about the Uncle Jack statue that was erected there. What's an Uncle Jack statue? Oh, it was a statue of a black man, large in scale, sculpted by Hans Schuller. And it was erected based on a premise that appeared in the Confederate Veteran magazine. Now, we don't subscribe. That again. We don't subscribe. <laughs> Although, my ancestors were Confederate veterans. Yeah, they were. Mine weren't. <laughs> So in 1894, the Confederate veteran put forward the idea that there should be, throughout the South, statues to honor faithful slaves who stayed behind on their enslavers' property during the war, to quote, It seems opportune now to erect monuments to the Negro race of the war period. The Southern people could not honor themselves more in cooperating to this end. What figure would be looked upon with a kindlier memory than Uncle Pete or Black Mammy? Well executed in bronze. Oh, God, no. By general cooperation, models of the two might be produced and duplicates made in every capital of the South at public expense and then in other larger cities by popular subscription. There is not a record in history subordination and faithful devotion by any race of people comparable to the slaves of the southern people during our great four years war for independence what a terrible idea right like but also wow they're really pushing this lost cause myth hard right so this was written and ignored because people were like uh, yeah no no until 1926 when a man named jackson lee bryan who lived in natchitoches commissioned a statue dedicated to the faithful service of the black people who had played an instrumental role in building Louisiana. Well, that sounds nice. Doesn't it? That's lovely sentiment. Right? Let's let's talk about Mr. Bryan a little bit. Hmm. I have a feeling it's not going to be good. He was born after the Civil War, but his father was a slaveholder, and he lived on Hope Plantation in Natchez, Louisiana, which is the Melrose area. Um, now, he paid... $4,300 for this statue. Holy shit, how much is that today? Like around 60000 Wow. Um, and it was designed by Hans Schuller Jr., who was a world-renowned sculptor, you know, and he'd won medals in France and was well-recognized. It was dedicated in 1927. Now, the bronze statue came to be known as the Good Darkie. No. <laughs> no. The inscription upon its base mm. read... Erected by the city of Natchitoches in grateful recognition of the arduous and faithful service of the good darkies of Louisiana. It said it on it. I'm nodding. You can't see me. I'm nodding. At the dedication ceremony, a resolution passed stating that the faithful and devoted service rendered by the old southern slaves in working and making crops and taking care of the white women and children while their masters were away for many years fighting to keep them in slavery has never been equal. That sounds so fucking made up. That's because it is. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, it sounds like a caricature of it is the South. <laughs> it is. But it sounds like something like a Yankee would say that we said. <laughs> But it is a character. It's a character of these people, and it's a character of the South. Now, the statue kind of embodied the idea of the old, faithful black man of the Civil War era who rejected their freedom, not knowing what to do with it, and understood their place in society and accepted it gratefully. 
happily bowing his head and symbolically tipping his hat to white society that had ostensibly provided care and protection for him throughout his life, says a paper of the time. Uncle Jack acknowledges that he doesn't have the same rights as white people. He can't vote or serve on juries or use the same public facilities as white people. But these inconveniences are but small price to pay for a more advanced, progressive society organized by the dictates of scientific racism, Jim Crow laws, and white supremacy. These are the messages that the creators of the Good Darkie Monument hope to impart to their viewing audience. This is a modern critic. <laughs> Interesting. And more true. Yeah. So what was the reality. I mean, of course, you did not have these thousands of enslaved people staying on plantations just to help take care of the kids for funsies. No, they weren't going anywhere until somebody came and told them it was okay because there were practices like under the code noir. Like if a man ran away once, he was branded with a fleur-de-lis on his shoulder. If a man ran away twice, his hamstring was cut and he was branded with a fleur-de-lis on his thigh. If a man ran away three times, he could be executed. And that's in writing. And officially sanctioned by the King of France. And that was the nice one. (laughs) But in reality, like around 180,000 black men enlisted in the United States military. The Union. Right. And some offered valuable reconnaissance or intelligence for the Union about the people they were serving. (laughs) And you were mentioning they wouldn't go until someone said something. Like, I just thought of those little mini- emancipation proclamations we saw at the african-american history museum Mm -hmm. that they you know the union soldiers would carry to read to the enslaved people whenever they guess freed a plantation basically liberated yeah i mean they basically were liberating it and and they'd pass it out and they'd pass them out too so that that information would be distributed widely as widely as possible so same critic writes Uncle Jack's life was priceless in the days of slavery, but his life became worthless in the war's aftermath. He possessed nothing but his freedom, and that freedom was meager at best. And used best to serve his old master. Well, in the eyes of the old master, I'm sure. That's what I mean. Yeah. So, statue had a rough go of it. I can't imagine why. Well, it attracted national attention at first. People were like, holy shit, this is awesome. We'll get to some of the things that were written about it later. But in 1968, activists vandalized the statue. And someone kind of, you know, threw it in Cane River. (laughs) Seems the place for it. Jack was recovered and removed from public view. And he was stored in the Natchitoches airport for four years which is like not really a thing it's kind of a hanger have you seen the statue no Uh, you just heard tail well no i saw the uh commemorative miniatures and watercolors that were sold in local gift shops oh good joe brian ducano brian's daughter wanted to find a new public location for the statue although some local residents wished for the statue to return to its original location ducano and other civic leaders throughout louisiana believed that the statue would fit better in a museum where its meaning could be interpreted and contextualized by museum professionals. Sounds familiar. Right. And a worthy strategy. I don't hate it. So the statue is placed on public display at the Louisiana State University Rural Life Museum in 1974. And it remains there today. Did they fully contextualize it? Sort of. We'll get there. So the stated purpose of the Rural Life Museum is to, quote, Show life the ways of the working classes of the 18th and 19th centuries in Louisiana and the lower Mississippi River Valley. They didn't contextualize it. They didn't really do so much. James Lowen says, When statues become controversial, civic leaders sometimes suggest 
that they are carted off to a museum. The statue of the Godarki shows what can go wrong with that solution. Although run by a university, the Rural Life Museum has not used the Godarki to provide insight into the largely forgotten lifestyles and cultures of pre-industrial Louisiana, which is the museum's avowed purpose. Now, the online catalog entry for Uncle Jack on the Rural Life Museum's website says that Uncle Jack is still controversial today. Individual reactions vary. To some, it is an honor. To others, it's demeaning. To still others, it is fond reminiscences. However, everyone will agree that it is part of Louisiana's history. I'll agree with that. <laughs> I didn't say it was a good part of it. Nope. <laughs> In the future, it is hoped that an accurate interpretation of the statue will be revealed not only to our visitors, but also to ourselves. We don't fucking know what to do with this. <laughs> like, Reed, we do not know what the fuck to do with this. And today, he's in the outdoor preservation area between the Baptist Church and the cemetery. So 1989, a state representative named Raymond Jetson wrote to the Rural Life Museum saying that the words, good darkies, were... Offensive. Yeah, he said that. That's what he said, actually. Wow, that's like so overused, such an overused term. And so correctly used. (laughs) And Alan Copping, who was the LSU president at the time wrote back that it's not possible to remove the inscription without damaging the base of the statue. Instead, the staff constructed a wooden frame to cover the entire inscription. I am confident that the modifications made to the base of the statue have eliminated the possibility of anyone being offended. Wow, he was wrong. <laughs> wow, wait. It's so obvious that Alan Copping had not met the internet yet. <laughs> Can I just say... So scholars have often discussed Uncle Jack. Kirk Savage said that the statue is best understood as a former slave, one who retains the appropriate attitude of servility and faithfulness. And he says that in a tongue-in-cheek way. Fiona Hanley says the good darky, by being faithful and subservient, was most similar to Uncle Tom, and thus represented the non-threatening behavior and simplistic Christian understanding of the world. James Lowen, who is not a fan of Uncle Jack, says the following. He describes the statue as being like unwanted hand-me-downs that don't fit and states that it has outlived its usefulness. The function of the good darkie was to commemorate, symbolize, and help maintain white supremacy, particularly that rigid form of racial subordination known as segregation. And he says that we should destroy it. Do we want to destroy Uncle Jack or do we want to take the time to try and preserve and understand these really complicated issues that surround him? Do we want to just get rid of it, put it out of sight, out of mind, and pretend like it didn't happen? Or do we want to engage in something difficult? That is the question of the day. It's really difficult. It's impossible to answer. No, I mean, like even to try to do a good job of explaining what he means is very difficult difficult because you have to spend two to three hours talking about the background to even understand it and then probably listen to another three hour episode of a podcast to really get it and even then the hosts don't have an answer for you (laughs) so can covering up the word good darky on the base of the statue sanitize it can we live with it then so once you've eliminated that what are you left with oh i mean just without you don't need a plaque to see what he represents Right, because he's tipping his hat. He's kind of rumpled looking. It's a very non-threatening image. Yeah, there's a reason you can't see Disney's Song of the South anymore. Because (laughs) it's this character. Cast the character in such a subservient light that 
it's so hard to contextualize that. But let's try. Okay, let's try. We're doing, we're trying to be, do an honest job of this, right? Like we want to kind of work through it. This is work. <laughs> it's work, but we're going to try it. So the text on the base speaks to the intent of the patron. Why did he have this made? To honor these good people he knew as a child who worked for him and showed him kindness. But what did he want to say about them? What were his motivations? Now, we were told about his motivations, but not his world view not how he understood this character and his worldview is at best in the most generous light limited and at worst aggressively (laughs) pro-white what is he commemorating the people he knew or the way it made him feel to be waited on is it the men and women who endured so much and continued to behave admirably with humanity and sincerity even in the face of massive and unimaginable set of circumstances or just his own sense of being empowered to demand things and expect deference of an entire race of people. He didn't answer this question. I don't think he would be able to. I don't either. But let's go to some, some original source documents and see what other people see in the good darky in his original inception. First statue erected in South to memory of devoted servant of antebellum days at Louisiana town. What is said to be the first statue ever created in the South to the memory of the devoted Negro of antebellum days has just been completed and is dedicated early in the spring in the quaint historic little town of Natchitoches. The memorial was conceived by the donor, J.L. Bryan, son of a large slave owner and himself a cotton planter and banker. As a babe, Mr. Bryan was lulled to sleep with what modernists call Negro spirituals, the crooning melodies of the old South. As a boy... He had for playmates the young Negroes of his father's plantation. In later life, he relied on Negro help in the work about his plantation and his oil mill in Natchitoches. To the darkies, who had served him all his life, he felt he owed a debt of gratitude. And in broaching the subject of the statue, he expressed his hope that other cities of Louisiana and the South would follow Natchitoches' example, a project of similar nature had been suggested a few years ago in Virginia, where it was proposed to erect a monument of an old Negro mammy. But differences of opinion among the whites and Negroes over the advisability of building such a memorial brought the plans to an end. The modern Natchitoches is not the Natchitoches of days before the Civil War. Yet, turbaned mammies still trundle babes through the street and past the little park where the statue of the good darky of Louisiana will have its resting place. Now, in 1935, a poem was written and dedicated to J.L. Bryan um, by Grace Tarleton Aaron. In picturesque old Natchitoches, immortalized in bronze, there stands the figure of an Odin slave, with wrinkled, toil-worn hands. His back is bent, his head is bowed, beneath the soft blue southern skies. His face is kind, and humble smile dwells in his honest eyes. Once in the famed colonial days, how faithfully he played his part, and with the fervor of his race gave all, then gave his heart. In times of peace and times of stress, he served his master's every need. There was no task, no sacrifice, too great. Love was his creed. Although his very kith and kin have long since vanished from our lives, the spirit of their loyalty in massive bronze survives. If dark-skinned were those noble slaves, no poet 
priest nor seer can tell what place the master has in heaven for those who serve man well. Oh my God, that's terrible. Jackson, Jack, was warned by his brother Joe that the statue could be controversial. (laughs) Maybe. And that he should ask the town council and get their acceptance. And he said, if you erect a statue in town of a Negro... It's going to piss off the white folks. That's what they were worried about. Plot twist. But seriously, like I'm reading this and I'm like, how can the black people stand this? They didn't have much say. Well, so I think that this story of the statue is so interesting because it obviously pushes forward that story, the story of the Uncle Remus character, of the Mammy character. But it's also like this weird, like... It's not putting up a Confederate soldier. You know, he could have had anything made. He spent $60,000 on it. Weirdly nice gesture. No, like, I disagree. It's like, it's it's on the nose. It's like, instead of having a figure that fought for slavery to keep people enslaved, it's basically a statue of a slave. So he said he was inspired by the photos of like an older black man standing guard of the gate of a plantation when they were coming to burn it down. And I can see how if that's your plantation, you're like, thank God he's there. And it does like hit you differently. Like, and then you've been steeped in this narrative. Like he, maybe he just bought it. A narrative that he was steeped in. A narrative that he was indoctrinated into. That's what I mean. Like yeah. he, from the time he was a child, this is yes. what's told to him. This is what's told to him. This is what's told to him. And so like, did he just believe it at face value and think he was doing a nice thing? Or was it malicious? I don't think it was malicious. It was tone deaf. It was tone deaf. But, but even though it shows how intense the indoctrination of this myth was to where this guy probably thought he wasn't doing anything wrong. No, he was standing up to the white people who didn't want a Negro in their square and defending them. And he was so indoctrinated that he thought that this was a nice gesture. A noble thing to do. That's why I'm like, it's so much more complicated. It's not some white supremacist who like erected like a minstrel statue. It's him like trying to do something bigger than himself. I mean, mean, it makes me cringe. It makes me cringe to talk about this. So that, so that's a statue that was erected in the twenties, 27. So that is kind of the era we were talking about earlier. That's that first big push that's not directly after the civil war that is very related to our jim crow era rise the second wave of the kkk when it really goes national and you get this dip after that you get a dip in the amount of civil war monuments that pop up there's really just kind of a a move away from that fad and some people say maybe it was kind of in response to the initial Civil War push because he had World War One mm-hmm. and World War Two, and people did want to commemorate that, but they did it differently. They there are a few doughboy statues and things like that, of course, but there's a lot of parks and there are a lot of fountains mm-hmm. and kind of more abstract things, and that's continued to this day. But in the fifties and sixties, you start to see another rise. The bigger rise in confederate memorialization well let me tell you what happened to uncle jack in the 50s and 60s twice he was painted white by members of the clan lovely once a cross was burned at the base of the statue 
Then a group of civil rights activists tried to saw off his arm to make him stop tipping his hat. Then he was torn down and thrown in Cane River, at which point the city of Natchitoches stepped in and said, this is arousing tensions. We need to take it down. Right. And like you said, this is that time. This is the civil rights movement. This is why they're popping up again. Well, and at this time, there was a plot called the Monumental Plot. And it was a plot by some extremists in the civil rights movement who were not affiliated with the Martin Luther King School of Getting Things Done and decided they were going to go be friends with Che Guevara and they were going to go to Cuba and hang out and become revolutionaries. Black Liberation Front was their moniker. And they were arrested in the midst of plotting to blow up the Statue of Liberty, the Washington Monument, and the Liberty Bell. Holy shit. So when this is written up in like the editorial papers and people are writing letters as they are wont to do, it is mentioned in a column that is nationally syndicated that if they wanted to tear down something, they should go tear down that good darky statue in Natchitoches, Louisiana. Oh, shit. <laughs> and that's when things really escalated. <laughs> so you do have the escalation of all of these Civil War monuments, even though there's been a real dip in them, very little activity for 30, 40 years. And this is happening during the Civil Rights Movement. Now, currently... There are at least 1,503 symbols of the Confederacy in public spaces. This includes at least 1,503 symbols of the Confederacy in public spaces, including monuments, statues, flags, holidays, other observances, names of schools, highways, parks, bridges, counties, cities, lakes, dams, roads, military bases, and other public works. There are at least 109 public schools named after prominent Confederates. About a third with large African-American student populations, named after Robert E. Lee, 52 the most. He wins everything except the Civil War, you know? I know. Stonewall Jackson, Jefferson Davis, PGT Beauregard, Nathan Bedford Forrest was seven. Oh! The original Grand Wizard of the KKK. Ride around in they bed sheets or something. There are 718 monuments. The majority, 551, were dedicated or built prior to 1950. More than 45 were dedicated or rededicated during the Civil Rights Movement. And one was put up in California in 2000, which is weird. Right. So James Grossman, the executive director of the American Historical Association, says that the increase in statues and monuments was clearly meant to send a message. These statues were meant to create legitimate garb for white supremacy. Why would you put a statue of Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson in 1948 in Baltimore? It's a good fucking question. So groups like the Sons of the Confederate Veterans defend these monuments, of course, arguing that they're an important part of history. One of the leaders of the group, Carl V. Jones, wrote a letter on August 14th condemning the violence and bigotry displayed in Charlottesville. But he also denounced the hatred being leveled against our glorious ancestors by radical leftists who seek to erase our history. Now, as we said, Mitch Landrew, the mayor of New Orleans, you know, recently helped tore down that wall, tore down the, tore down the monuments and gave a fantastic speech justifying it in just a very small snippet of it. He said that these statues are not just stone and metal. They're not just innocent remembrances of a benign history. These monuments celebrate a fictional sanitized Confederacy, ignoring the death Ignoring the enslavement, ignoring the terror that it actually stood for. 
Then he references the cornerstone speech by the vice president of the Confederacy mentioned earlier, saying, Now, now with these shocking words still ringing in your ears, I want to try to gently peel from your hands the grip on a false narrative of our history that I think weakens us and makes straight a wrong turn we made many years ago so we can more closely connect with integrity to the founding principles of our nation and forge a clearer and straighter path toward a better city and a more perfect union. And so, gotta, you know, I don't want to be completely liberal. Let's throw a Republican president in there. What? George W. Bush. So he said at the dedication ceremony for the National Museum of African American History and Culture, a great nation does not hide its history. It faces its flaws and it corrects them. So what we have here, not a problem of erasing history. It's a problem of wanting to erase a story. Erase a false history. It's hard for me to contemplate what it means to be Southern without worrying that people will think I am a racist. (laughs) And I don't want to be that. And I don't want to be small-minded. But there's so much more to the truth of what happened here during the Civil War than men on horses who went to good schools, had fine educations, and inherited lots of money and lots of people that didn't want to be there. My family is sharecroppers. (laughs) They worked in lumber mills. They were not a privileged class. And yet the narrative is so strong and so attractive that it has a pull even there. Even they can believe it. It's insidious. It privileges whites. We cannot look at the story and pretend that it does not still continue that pattern of privilege and entitlement. It cannot be separated from that. If we did that, it would be erasing history. Well, we know that no one likes that. That's not just a story it's not just a story